Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff for the 251st time. This is still too many podcasts, Jonathan. Yes. So last week was podcast 250, so we started a bit of a journey. We're going back and we are redoing our top 10 favorite video games of all time lists. We did this in 2013, very early on in the life of the podcast, and we're doing it again. Because it's been five years, a lot has happened, it's another milestone episode with episode 250, so we thought, let's take another stab at it, and uh, yeah, if you didn't listen to part one, in part one we did number 10 through 6, we're doing 5 through 1 this week, and it's been a lot of fun so far. Yes, and, and, and the first episode went longer than I thought, and I am afraid for how long this one is going to go, because that was our bottom five of the ten, or however yes. you phrase it, not the top five of the ten. We'll find out. This is scary, Jonathan. We'll find out. All right. Do you want to do a quick recap of our 10 through 6 for people? Sure. All right. My number 10 was Pokemon Crystal Version. My number 10 was The Last of Us. My number 9 was Fire Emblem Awakening. My number 9 was Bloodborne. My number 8 was The Last of Us. My number 8 was Hitman 2016. My number 7 was the Mass Effect Trilogy. My number 7 was World of Warcraft. My number 6 was Halo Combat Evolved. And my number 6 was Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Awesome. So, before we dive into number 5, do you want to have a quick talk about something that we, I don't think, talked about in terms of ground rules last time, which is, how did you deal with recency bias? Well, you'll we'll find, find out, out on my list. Yeah, I mean, it's... Because I'll say, I have, in my top 5, I have one recent game. And the other four are a little older. Um, and I had a couple of more recent ones on the other half of it. It's weird because like with movies, I want to fight recency bias a lot because yeah. movies have been around for a very long time. With games, I don't feel as much of a need for it because games are a much newer medium. You know, We've been alive for over half of the you know, existence of video games as a format, right? Yep. Uh, a lot of the significant ones have come out in our lifetime, so recency bias is not as much of a thing to fight, but it is still a thing to think about. Yeah, I was not as concerned about recency bias this time as I was on the 2013 list. I mean, I didn't, I don't have any game that like just came out last month, which is like the because again, listening on the last episode, we did The Last of Us was a month before. Right. Um, when we did the 2013 original version of the list, and you had it on your list, and I was like, I can't put out, I can't put out this list again that just came out last month. Yes. I so, but I do have a number of games. There have already been a couple, like like Hitman and Bloodborne, that came out this generation. They right. are not the only games that came out this generation that are on my list. Okay. Um, and it's and it's something of where. If it was at least a year old, and I played it a couple of times, I'm like, fuck it. Like, why does it matter in that way? Also because the, with movies, recency bias has never been a concern of mine because all my favorite movies are super old movies. Even when I was a kid, all my favorite movies were like fucking Frankenstein and Godzilla and King Kong and shit. So that was never a concern because there was that huge history. For me, and it's been a like a testament to, I think, how utterly amazing, like particularly 2015, 16, and 17 were for games, um... Is that like I was just like these games are some of these games like Hitman 2016 and Bloodborne are so good that yes they are some of my favorite games and, and I I will stand by that and put my foot down and say it's like fuck it like it's these are these games are just that good yes I agree so with that in mind let's get back into the countdown and I ask this because number five is the most recent game on my list okay it's from one year ago one and a half now it's The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Oh, 
I was curious if it was going to make the list because we talked about on the game of the year from 2017. We both had games that were the games that maybe were, these might be our favorite games ever. Yes. Yeah. So here's the thing. Zelda was far and away the franchise I suffered the most trying to pick one entry from. Okay, because, yeah, I can see that for sure. Because I do think of, like, there are series like Persona or something where every Persona I've played I love, but there's, there are three of them that I have played. Yeah. Three, four, five, and I think they're amazing. Zelda, every Zelda game I have played is one of the single best games I've ever played. L- Link to the Past, Link's Awakening, Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, Wind Waker, Twilight Princess, Breath of the Wild, a couple others I think that I might be forgetting. But like when I have played a Zelda game, it has not just been like, man, that was really cool. It's like that is an earth-shattering, like boundary-defining game for me. Even ones that like people are more hit and miss on, like Twilight Princess. I think Twilight Princess is a fucking masterpiece. It's got rough edges, but I think like the dungeon design in that game is so ludicrously good. I considered it for this list. That's probably my... Well, I would say that might be my runner-up, except A Link to the Past exists. Right. And that might be my runner-up. Except I also think A Link Between Worlds on the 3DS is probably the best game on the 3DS... And I fucking love that game. Except Link's Awakening on the Game Boy Color. Oh my god, that's a special game. Ocarina of Time, of course, classic yeah. for every reason. It is, you know, one of those you would put as maybe the Citizen Kane of games. It's amazing. And I love it, but I also really think Majora's Mask is weird and cool and special. So, like, I do think Zelda, like, in terms of, for its number of at-bats, might have the highest batting average of any game series I've ever seen. And that doesn't even... Do it justice of just like how good each at bat is. Yeah. Um, you know, luckily I've never played like Four Swords Adventures or something to like bring that down for me. So that's or like great. the CDI games with the right. weird animation. Yes. So I really love the Zelda series, and I went back and forth of like you know, Breath of the Wild is a very different Zelda game. It's it's a three D Zelda game, but I don't think it exists in that same continuum of like Ocarina of Time. Twilight no, Princess. yeah, it breaks the mold yeah. so completely that it's right. a different kind of Zelda game. For so sure. it feels different. So it feels like I'm not really getting that Ocarina of Time, Twilight Princess side of things. But then there's the two D games like Link to the Past, and I really did want a Super NES game on here, and I thought about putting that on there. But I think with a list like this, you have to go with your heart at some point, right? Yeah. And here's the thing, guys. Every day, I boot up my computer, my iPhone, or my iPad, and I have a Breath of the Wild wallpaper on there. I see the art from this game every day of my life. And every day I do that, looking at it makes me feel good. They've been there since before the game came out. I put those wallpapers up. And I have no plans to swap them out with anything else anytime soon, because I don't think I have ever connected so immediately with the aesthetics of not just a video game, but maybe any work of art, than I did with Breath of the Wild, which, as I said on my Game of the Year last year, I kind of fell in love with from the moment we saw actual gameplay in 2016 at E3. Um, And, of course, that love grew exponentially when I finally played the game. And the other thing to say here also is that I love all those other Zelda games. I have not played any of those other Zelda games if I combined all those times, might not still add up to the amount of time I've spent in Breath of the Wild, yeah. which my play clock is somewhere in the vicinity of 160 hours. That's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, and that's not like I've replayed the game. That's one playthrough, however you define that, and then the two DLC expansions. I've never gotten tired of it. It is the only open world game I've ever played where I will boot up the game just so I can go walk around in the world with no goal in mind, just to look at the art and soak in the atmosphere. It almost feels cleansing to me, you know? Um, This is a game that, to me, I, I don't think any other game, for me, has ever done a better job of just 
enabling you to go have an adventure. I think we talked about this a little bit uh, on the last podcast with like Hitman of the sandbox kind of design of do you give the player a ton of tools or a limited set with a lot of configurations. And Breath of the Wild, I think, is such a great masterclass of that latter type of game design of... Let's not go overboard with what there is to do in this world. Let's pare it down and say Link is going to have this set number of powers. He's going to get them pretty early on. There's these types of weapons. There's these types of ways to interact. And then it is this massive chemistry set of what do you do when you are out in the world and experimenting with these things. And I think Breath of the Wild is such a beautifully, singularly focused game of it feels like every game design choice to me was made with that idea in mind of how can we let the player go have their own cool, fun adventure out in this giant version of Hyrule. And I think every choice they made, virtually every choice they made, there are imperfections, obviously, was the right one for that overall overarching goal for the player. And it's something where I've spent so much time with this game, and I could just talk about the art forever, but you you know how I love the art. I've talked about it a lot. Um, That I forget sometimes, like, some of the basic things I loved about it when I was starting out, like... How you go discover the world and you have a very basic topographical map and there's the towers out in the distance and because the game has like an infinite draw distance you can see those and you're going to make for them but there's going to be a lot of adventures on the way and a lot of things to distract you and a lot of you know stories you're going to create for yourself and then you get to a tower and you discover more of the map and it gives you more to go explore and it really is this beautiful exploration based adventure and along the way you find all these shrines and inside the shrine is a cool puzzle and I love cool puzzles. So that's neat. It's kind of like, you know, I've talked about before. It very much gives you some of the same kind of dopamine rush as a portal or something like that with these great 3D puzzle designs, which frankly are even better in the uh, recent DLC they did. The Champion's Ballad might have the best of all that shrine design stuff. So I'll include the DLC in this as well. Um, And that sense of discovery and the stories that come up when you're playing all of that and the amount of things that there are to do between the shrines and the exploration and some of the story content, um, but not so much that it feels overwhelming. It feels like natural things along the way that you run into. I really love that about it. You know, one of the defining moments where I think I truly knew how much I loved this game was when I was out in sort of the highlands, the like desert mountain area, and I'm exploring, and I see this like really tall mountain across from me, or this tall like spire sort of thing, and I'm like, you know, I want to go get to the top of that because you can climb on whatever you want. Yeah. And there's challenges before you have, you know, your full stamina and all your stuff of how far you can climb at once, which is a fun thing in and of itself. So I glide over to this thing and I start climbing and I don't do it quite right and I fall. I'm like, fuck. And I try it again and I try it again. And finally I get up and I get over the crest. And as I'm getting over the crest, this music starts playing. I'm like, I recognize that. And it's the Dragon Roost Island theme from The Wind Waker. And then I'm like, oh shit, I'm in. And then it comes up on screen, Rito Village. And I've just found it. And it was, this is one of the main four places you're supposed to go in the game. And I stumbled upon it completely by accident. And that is just one of those absurdly magical moments that is is indescribable to me. Um, Breath of the Wild feels like a game so made for what I want out of a video game. I love every element of it to death. I even think the storytelling in this game is brilliant and beautiful in its non-linearity and in how much it asks you to add into the story itself because it's a small, suggestive story with a lot of, you know, beautiful little grace notes and solemn moments. Very much, I think, takes from some of the lessons of, like, Ocarina of Time and how it presents its story through, you know, these quiet, silent moments. But then again, adding in your own sense of the adventure. Um, 
you know, this game obviously is a little difficult to rank because of its recency. Right. Uh, I thought number five was good because I don't think it would fall below that line, at least with these other ten games uh, upon further reevaluation. But I also absolutely think it could climb in the years to come. Again, the next couple games, four, three, and two especially, I've had in my life a much, much, much longer time. So it would feel irresponsible to let it leapfrog right now. Um, but it could go higher. I, I said when this game came out, that Breath of the Wild was the first game that, since I played my number one game, which you'll find out is later, the first game I've played since then that has really challenged that spot for me. And I think that remains true. But I think five feels like a, a good place here, a good place to start this second half of the list. And just a game I absolutely fucking love. It inaugurated my new favorite video game console, uh, the Nintendo Switch, which is still fucking awesome, and I love it. And, uh, yeah... You all know Breath of the Wild is cool. Cool. That's my thought on it. That's my number five. Okay. What's your number five? My number five, you talked about Halo Combat Evolved last episode. Now it's time for me to talk about Halo 3. You're still going with Halo Three. Yes, I can't. It's I can't pick. I don't, it's just impossible. It's, it's okay. It's, it's yeah. I'm glad we get to talk about two different Halos. Yes, and it would. There was. It was a kind of like with Kotor. There was this sort of like subtle calculation of like Choth is probably going to pick the first one, right? We did that let's play thing. He's probably going to pick the first one, right? It's like yes, yes. Halo Three. Um, yeah. So Halo Three is the one I picked in 2013, and it is where was it on my list then? It is it is one spot higher than it used to be. Oh wow! Um, which I think is appropriate. Um, Halo Three is one of those of where you know obviously this is standing in for all of Halo in many ways, and, and Halo Combat Evolved is the best campaign. If it was just a campaign, Halo Combat Evolved would be the game on here for Halo. But Halo Three is kind of like World of Warcraft it exists in this like magical moment of that game came out September 25th 2007 I didn't have to look that up to no. write it down here um, and and so that was our first year freshman year of high school and um, it was like the game I played religiously for three years until Halo Reach came out and even after Halo Reach came out which was like our senior year of high school I eventually myself and a group of my friends kind of migrated back to Halo 3 and our custom games and things we had gotten used on that platform and so with that in mind Halo 3 um, wins one of my awards for people who've forgotten from the last week's episode I'm doing my stupid video game thing of giving stupid custom awards to all these games to recognize things I love about them so Halo 3 gets the good lord I spent a solid month of my life on this thing award for most played video game. And that 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 number of it being a month, that's not me just spitballing. Uh, like about a year ago, I was just had this evening where I was like, I'm cute I'm just like just thinking about old stuff and like as I think I'd run into one of my old friends and like I hadn't seen him forever. I was like, Oh hey, what's up? And we're talking about stuff. And it was someone I had played with Halo 3 with all the time. And so then later that evening I was just thinking about, oh man, like Bungie.net had all the stats, and I used to go check that shit all the time. I think they're down now. I think in between now and then, they have gotten rid of these, so I can't recheck it. But back then, the Bungie.net and that stuff was all still up. 
And I went up onto their thing. I was like, I'm going to do the roughest calculation. Obviously, I didn't go in and, like, checked. It, like, did, like, precise math. It counted every single game time and all that stuff. But I just kind of went in there and looked at the number of multiplayer games I played. Because you could sort it by, like, Slayer games versus Capture the Flag and, like, objective-type games. or Because you could split out the hoppers. And then all the custom games I played, all the campaign missions I played. And I've just been like, okay, Slayer games, average eight minutes like objective games i'm gonna give that like 15 minutes like most of them on average it's sort of like spitballed that but counted like like went with like the raw number of how many games i played and like the campaign and i think i could pretty easily see how long each campaign playthrough was because i played through the campaign like six times or something uh because with like between co-op and like co-op with my brother co-op with you like four-player co-op with other people like i played the fucking campaign a bunch of times and then all the custom games. I forget what. I think I gave like 10 minutes or something to custom games. I just like put all this together, calculated it all out. And then basically every choice I made was like I'm going to round down here to like – so because I don't want to oversell it. I just want to see like a number. I'm very confident I have at least played this much Halo 3. And when I put it all out, it was legitimately 30 days approximately solid of my life I have spent – playing Halo 3. That's a lot. That's a lot. And that's across basically four years of actively playing that game. And if you wonder, how the fuck do you play 30 days worth? Because again, when I say 30 days, I mean that's like 24 hours for each day. That's 720 hours in total. Yes. I was wondering. And so it was, it was roughly around that many hours. And the way you play that much of that game is you go to school, and then you come home from school, and you have a group of about... Nine to ten people that, like, you know at least two or three of them are going to be on every single night. Like, like, like they're, like, depending on what's happening, like, oh, they're on the cross-country track team, so they're not going to be on tonight. But, oh, you're going to be on tonight. And it was just this thing of, like, most nights, I or, like, not even nights, like, most, like, days at, like, three o'clock after I got home from school, it was go down to the basement, sit down, turn on the Xbox 360, and and there were like three people I could play Halo Three with, and that was a ritual I had for like three or four years, and it was this constant thing. And and I played Halo Three easily more than I played any other game. I don't think I'll. I don't think it's physically possible for me at any point in the future, unless I stop playing other video games and just pick one video game to play for the rest of my life. I don't think I'm ever going to reach that <laughs> number again. Like it's a ridiculous number, but it makes sense to me of that. Because Halo 3 is not just this, like, one static game. And so the other award I gave it was the video game hipster recognition for doing that shit before it was cool for being a game as a service. Because Halo 3 is not just the campaign, and it's not just the multiplayer. Halo 3 is one of the most, like, revolutionary, like, most advanced games of its time, the most influential games of its time. When you, Especially when you look at the moment we're in now and, like, this generation, I think we are, like, we have caught up to Halo 3. And by that I mean, you know that fucking button on the PlayStation 4 controller that says share on it that can take screenshots and save footage of a game? What if I told you Halo 3 in 2007 on the Xbox 360 built that into the fucking video game? Like, that was a game with Halo 3 where you loaded up the main menu and it had, like, five things on it. It had the campaign, 
It had like local multiplayer. It had, it had an online multiplayer. It had theater mode, which was your saved films and your screenshots, and you could go in and, and go into any multiplayer game or campaign game you had played and do a free camera. So it's even better than what the PS4 can do, obviously, because they designed it so you can just have a free flying camera that can go around, look at whatever you want to look at. You can pause the action, save a screenshot. You can go in slow motion on, I think in campaign, you couldn't reverse it because there's too much complicated data with like the way the AI was behaving. But on uh, multiplayer games, you could like reverse and go back and be like, oh shit, I want to see that from another angle and go backwards. You could do all that. You could, as we did, make movies in Halo 3, which both of you and I made two movies and like started a Romeo and Juliet project we talked about on a podcast a yes. while ago. Um, and, and so there you could do that with it. And then part, as part of that also, you had the forge mode where you could go in and you could make maps and like like change like the weapon layout and all that kind of stuff. Eventually with the DLC with the foundry map, they like kind of expanded that out so you could very more easily create like here's a little multiplayer map and then they would wrap those into the multiplayer hoppers. And Halo 3 was like the most you know, like World of Warcraft is a slightly different thing, but for especially for a console game and like an action multiplayer kind of game, Halo 3 was the most living, breathing, active game I've ever seen. Like, even today, even today, something like Overwatch or whatever, or, or PUBG and Fortnite, like, maybe Fortnite, from what I, even though I don't play Fortnite, from what I hear about it, Fortnite might be at the level now that Halo 3 was at, and how responsive Bungie was to the community, how well they, they cultivated that community, and how much they integrated that community directly into the game. Because it was a constant series of updates and tweaking the map layouts. Like, if you go back and played a lot of Halo 3 multiplayer online, and then go back and play the, like, original versions of those maps... It's like playing a completely different fucking game because the weapon layout and the balance is so different in base Halo 3 than it eventually like got so refined later on. Like original Halo 3 has all these fucking flares and the Mauler yep. brute shotguns all over like every map had like 11 of the fucking things just scattered everywhere and they refined all of that and, and really tweaked those maps. They had the huge one where they took um, Snowbound and and uh, can never remember which one was the original, but like Epitaph, whichever that way, because there's Epitaph and Epigram, yep. and Snowbound and Boundless, where they went in and they took out the shield walls on those maps and basically turned them into a totally different map, where like the flow of the map completely changed. And so Bungie was so hands-on and active with that community, you know, integrating the the community made forge maps into the multiplayer hoppers and all that kind of stuff, surfacing like the best saved film clips and the best screenshots publicly for like every week you could go see. Um, that it was the most I ever participated in an online community. It's the most I've ever played a game. It's the most I've ever cared about a game. It's the most time spent ever in a game for me. And is the game that has been most rewarding. Because there were so many ways to play it. And while Halo Combat Evolved is definitely the best campaign, is kind of like the most perfect campaign, Halo 3's campaign is no fucking slouchy. Oh, it's fucking amazing. It's incredible. It's like, because yeah. usually, set, 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 let's set the stage. We have never been more hyped for a game than Halo 3 in our lives, no. right? Yeah. Yeah. Halo 3, so much hype. Halo 1 and 2, even though 2 has some stumbling blocks, they're both so good. Halo 2 ends on such a great cliffhanger. And three years of hype for Halo 3, that campaign comes out, you play it in a day or two, no disappointment. It nailed what it needed to nail in every way. Yeah. Yeah, the, the story was great. The, the, like, I love the note they leave it on with the Master Chief, just like, especially with the legendary ending, just yeah. like out in space on that fucking thing. And just like the level design and... Each and, level is so significantly different. Yes, each level has a very clear identity to itself, which was a... Big improvement over Halo 2, where levels just kind of bleed together and they feel awkward and not have an identity. There's a very, like, sort of, like, thematic, committed thought to each level and how each level played. There is, like, that Cortana level is not great, 
but there's I think there's nine campaign levels and that one's a bit of a dud but the other but that's also a pretty short one um, there's also these scarab battles are still some of my favorite things in any game I still whenever I go play the scarab levels I just get so hyped internally of like I get to do the scarab yeah thing. like it's the kind of thing that I wish more games would try that kind of thing again of just having a gigantic AI character in a level just something so fucking massive that towering over everything and just the whole sandbox of Halo 3 was so refined because that was Halo 3 was very much like it played a lot like Halo 2 but refined extremely well whereas Halo 2 was you know, changed so much about how Halo 1 played. I think we talked a little bit about that in the, the Let's Play we did, of how, you know, Halo 1 is this very specific kind of Halo game that plays very different from the other ones. But Halo 3 took the sandbox of Halo 2 and dual wielding and melee and grenades and, and all that, added the equipment stuff on there, which was a great addition, and just refined everything down and balanced it properly. They, they put the assault rifle back in, which fixed the SMG spawn issue or the battle rifle spawn issue from Halo 2. And there was just this sense of, like, incredible experience going into Halo 3 from that studio of they have been through this a couple of times they know what they're making they went through the hell of making Halo 2 watch those fucking Halo 2 documentaries that are now on their YouTube channel from the limited edition Halo 2 and like they really like went through hell on that game and then came out the other side and feels like they were so re-energized to really get it right this is also a game that, like, talking about the hype, this was, I think, probably the first podcast I ever listened to was the Bungie podcast that they did uh, before the release of that game. And I remember like, you telling me about that before I knew what podcasts were. Yes, like, because it was, like, I think it was the first iPod I had, which was a hand-me-down from my brother when he got a new iPod, and I got that one. It was like, fuck, I have this iPod now. Well, I'm going to listen to it on this iPod. And it's like, oh, the Bungie has this podcast, and it has, like, Frank O'Connor and these guys on it. And, and listen to that, and, and that kind of started my, like... Well, it didn't start because there was also the, the Halo 2 documentaries, but, like, that really accelerated my obsession with that era of Bungie and that, like, the studio culture they had. And they had all the Vidox and all that, the incredible trailers. Um, it, it, that element of the game was just incredible. And then the campaign played so well and the sandbox was so compelling. And then the multiplayer had, you know, this rich history of Halo and all the modes and the kind of things that, like, was so disappointing about Halo 5 that they took all that stuff out. Halo 3 had Oddball and King of the Hill, and they added territories and VIP, and they had racing modes that you could make. And that was one of the great things about multiplayer is that there were two sides of Halo 3 multiplayer. There was the official, like, go into the matchmaking, go on to online, and then there was, we're just going to fucking give you this list of shit you can change, and we're going to give you Forge and make you put, like, weapons and everything in wherever you want, and you can make whatever you want and make any game type and then share it online. And it was so heavily modifiable that, like, it was something that I got committed to. And there's, like, that's one of my favorite things I've ever done in games is making that Thor mode yep. of... It was, like, super high running speed, really low gravity and high jump speed, and you had the gravity hammer, and you had the Spartan laser, and you had just enough health that, like, you really had to nail somebody with that Spartan laser to actually kill them, and it was hard to get them with the gravity hammer. And and I played that mode so much. You played that mode. Like, I came over to your house, showed you, like, Jonathan, I made this amazing thing in Halo 3. Let me show you. Let me, like, make it on your box. And then you had it, too. Yep. I, I, my brother and I still play that sometimes. Yeah. It's so much fun. And it was, like, it was, like, this was my, like, 
five seconds in like my own personal spotlight of like I'm a video game designer too like I can make this weird with the tools of this game I can make this weird little game and I had other people I knew that made cool random game modes with like mongooses and stuff that were fun and then there were all the custom games online particularly once Foundry came out and you had all the weird forge maps of like here's this crazy maze this dude made here's like this crazy like racing map that like has these loop-de-loops and shit on it that's like I have no idea how these people made this stuff and then one game I played endlessly with people online was a game mode called Lava Pit that was the second DLC where they added the big sand map that you could go to like the ceiling level and like make a map on like in the sky and it was like this little donut and it reminded me a lot of like the the donut map in Mario Kart 64 multiplayer like battle mode you could do it was like this little donut and you had all these vehicles that spawned on the outside and in the middle were kill balls so if you fell into the middle you died everyone was invincible so the only I remember way you, this yes so the only way you won was by ramming other people's cars like warthogs and ghosts into the middle and that game mode was so much fun and so different from playing Halo normally that that was like I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of custom games played on that Bungie.net thing and a whole bunch of them were just playing that fucking lava pit mode with my friends and I have so many unbelievably fond memories from playing Halo 3 another aspect of it which is something they took out about Halo Reach that I never quite forgave them for was the saved films mode in Halo 3 you could watch those with a party of up to four people and I didn't do it very often but one of my favorite things I like to do in Halo 3 multiplayer was play team doubles with people because it was a very tactical version of that game and I got a lot better at the game sort of knowing here's where the weapon spawns are here's like how I like kind of know how the timer is working so I can get the sniper rifle and all that kind of stuff and it was fun playing team doubles and having something, which is, you know, a very personal thing if you're, like, playing with it on, online. It's just, like, me and one of the friend in, in a private chat talking while we're playing the game. And if something ridiculous happened to that game of, like, oh, my God, I threw this fucking plasma grenade that hit this fusion coil and it blew up and it stuck this dude in the head and he fucking fell down here and blew up right next to his teammate and we, like, took this spot and won the game because of that. Going into save film in that same chat, in that same party, and both of us looking at the save film, each having, like, independent view of the camera and, like, looking around being, like... Where the fuck did that grenade come from? And it's like, oh, I found it. And, like, bring the camera over to this tower on Blackout. And, like, zooming over there and seeing that. It was such a rich, like, incredibly rich evolving experience in Halo 3. And having so many different ways you could engage with the game. It was, you know, when I talked about talking about The Last of Us um, and, like, the holistic game experience from, like, like thematic-driven point of view, this was a holistic game experience from, like, a whole other sphere, right? It's a whole other, like, communal social element that they designed in the game. And Bungie's achievement in cultivating that community and servicing it and providing it these incredible tools, which was at the time, especially on a console but even on PCs, basically unprecedented and has still like for individual games been I don't think ever like eclipsed even Bungie didn't quite do it as well on Halo Reach um that Halo 3 is this like it is definitely like this sort of like precious like you know in a glass bottle moment of time in my past and it's something that if I go back to Halo 3 I can't have those experiences anymore but I still have some of those safe films like I still have some of those screenshots we still have our fucking dumb movies we made like we still have all that stuff and if you want to go play the campaign it has an age today yes it's great the campaign's still great and if you know the day comes that I have a bunch of like people over and it's just like fuck it let's play Thor I can still play Thor and it would still be a ton of fun and I made that shit you know, I picked Halo Combat Evolved, and I think I defended it well. I think yes, I have a good reason I, for I that. I do not think you were wrong in picking it. I do think, like, there's no question, though, in my mind, 
uh, and I would have said this before all of this, is Halo 3 is the definitive Halo. It is yeah. the most Halo. It is the most, like, when I think of the word Halo, I see the Spartan designs and the colors and everything from Halo 3. It's the best looking Halo. Yeah, it's so gorgeous. Far. The colors are so bright and vivid. It's incredible yeah. looking. It's like on the Master Chief Collection, you go back and play that now in, you know, 1080p, 60fps. It's fucking gorgeous. Yeah. I love the overall look of the game and the feel and the art direction. But all the stuff you talked about, all the features, as a package... It is the 100% ultimate, like, top of the mountain pinnacle of what Halo is, was, could be, can be forever. Yeah, Bungie and just so saw where the internet was going with social features and, like, how that shit would change. That's, like, eventually the kind of features they baked into Halo 3 got baked into fucking, like, both of the new major consoles in Xbox One and PS4. And if that's not, like, ahead of its time and, like, revolutionary, I don't know what is. Well, then let's move on to a game that I think... Is also ahead of its time because this is one of the best games ever made. It's pretty old now; it's from 2002. My number four is Metroid Prime. It's one of my favorite games. Uh, this is actually when I was telling you guys earlier about replaying games. I replayed Metroid Prime in its entirety a couple weeks oh, ago. Cool. Um, I meant to go in and just play a little of it, and I played the whole goddamn game because it's that good. It is one. It is my fourth favorite according to this list. I love Metroid Prime. Specifically, I do want to say I am referring to the Metroid Prime Trilogy Edition of this game. Because I also did try to see if I could finally do a full playthrough of the GameCube version of this game this time, and I can't. No knock against it, but once you've played the Wii version where you have full free control of everything, it is very tough to go back to the GameCube controller setup where there is a C-stick, but you do not use it for moving your visor around and everything is on one stick. It's very difficult to play. I think the Wii version of this game is perfect. It's, I think, the, the Metroid Prime Trilogy Collection, which I have that steelbook. It's one of my most treasured gaming possessions. I think that is the definitive version of the Metroid Prime games. I also did go back, after I played Metroid Prime 1, Sean, I played Metroid Prime 3 in its entirety for the nope. first time, because I had not beat Metroid Prime 3 before. I skipped over 2. I love 2, but it's very long, and I didn't have all that much time. Uh, Metroid Prime 3 is also a stupendous this game, uh, Metro Prime 3 Corruption, is, um, I think, the second best of the Prime games. My second favorite Metroid overall. I think it is a unbelievably amazing game, and it almost made me think I should swap and do, like, not the Mass Effect trilogy, but the Metroid Prime trilogy, but I decided that was one cheat too many. Okay. So I'm going with just Metroid Prime, because I do think it is the best of these. And I have a little piece I wrote about this, just like I had for Mass Effect, and I want to read this here because I think there's a lot I could say about Metroid Prime, but I think this sums it up. In 2002, as console first-person shooters were just becoming a thing in the wake of games like GoldenEye, Perfect Dark, and Halo, Metroid Prime was something of a Trojan horse, a game with a first-person perspective and a big old gun aimed at the center of the screen, but that was not, at its core, about shooting things. Metroid Prime is an enduringly unique game, nigh impossible to easily classify, so much so that the games most indebted to its design ethics, such as Batman Arkham Asylum or Dark Souls, look and play almost nothing like it, but I think it is perhaps best understood as an experience akin to archaeology. 
It is a game about arriving on a mysterious planet, exploring every nook and cranny, and learning from the architecture, flora, and fauna to uncover a story that is not told to you, but exists in the environment to be discovered and pieced together by the player. The scan visor, a function that allows Samus to analyze creatures, structures, enemy data, and more, lends Metroid Prime one of the most quietly brilliant approaches to interactive storytelling ever, as it puts the crafting of the tale squarely in your hands, or more accurately, your eyes, as it is what you choose to scan, read, examine, and think about that forms a narrative for you to digest. The game has combat, and it's extraordinarily good, especially in the boss battles, something Retro has a practically chemical affinity for making special rather than tedious, and it has platforming, which is unusually intuitive and thrilling for a first-person perspective, and it has puzzle-solving, item collection, and rewarding backtracking through its complex but accessible world, all hallmarks of 1994's Super Metroid, and all translated so seamlessly and effectively to three dimensions that it arguably stands as the definitive example of this sort of intricate game design. But at its heart, Metroid Prime is a game about seeing, about looking at the world, learning from it, and moving forward with that experience as your primary weapon. In some of the game's most visually striking moments, a powerful flash of light from Samus's beam will refract light upon her visor, allowing the player to briefly glimpse her and their own reflection. And it is in those moments when you feel the weight of the game's brilliance most forcefully, as you realize those eyes are your own, and they, not the omnipresent gun arm, are the main tool at your disposal, a tool that is simultaneously invisible and palpable at all times. So... That is, I think, the best summary I can give for Metroid Prime. Retro Studios, this was basically their first major game. They came out of the gate with an utter masterpiece. I cannot overstate how much I love that scan visor function. I want more games to have things like that, where you can just read about the world, and some poor person at Retro had to write a million entries, and yet they did it so fucking well. And I love reading about the world and discovering it. And it really is unique in that even the Metroid Prime sequels, which I think are brilliant don't quite follow the formula of Metroid Prime 1. They are more linear. They have more of an overt story with, like, text boxes and people talking to you. And in Metroid Prime 3, they have full voice acting. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But Metroid Prime 1 really does have this singular magic of having a story that exists in the environment that does not exist as a linear sequence of scenes that you move through. You know, the Metroidvania thing, as we call it, which should really just be called the Metroid thing, because Castlevania stole it from Metroid, not not the other way around. Um, But the Metroidvania-style thing, I think, is a really hard thing to do right. It's why even most of the Metroid games don't go full, like, Super Metroid on how they do it. Um, But I think Metroid Prime is the best and most immersive version of it. Everything I said about the combat and the platforming and all of that, it is just a joy to go around this world. It's a beautiful game. You know, it's from 2002. The the Wii version does look better than the GameCube version, but the Wii is basically two GameCubes taped together, so it's it's not enormously better looking. Um, But it doesn't need a remaster. It looks so good the way it is. It plays so good the way it plays. I really do think... Because of what I'm arguing about the experiential element of it, I do think the Wiimote and Nunchuck is the definitive way to play that game. Like, one day it will probably be redone, and you will do it just, you'll be able to play it with just normal twin stick controls, and that will be fine. But there is some magic to having the Wiimote in your hand and moving Samus's visor around as an actual physical motion that I think is really crucial to how I experience this game and its sequels. And I should also say, the control setup on the Wiimote Nunchuck 
is the weirdest fucking thing and also the most intuitive game controls I've ever experienced. It's so wild. Like, if I were to try to explain the controller layout and how you have to fire missiles with the down of the D-pad on top of the Wiimote, you'd be like, that sounds crazy. It feels so good when you're actually playing the game. It's nuts. And that goes for all three of the, the Metroid Prime games. But yeah, this is a magical, amazing game. I love it to death. It Metroid, you all know, is a series I adore. Super Metroid would also rank highly here. Metroid Prime 3, as I said, would rank highly here. But this is the core of my Metroid love. I think it is about as good as games get. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. And I am excited for Metroid Prime 4. I'm sure it will be cool. But Metroid Prime really is, to me, this thing that Retro made between 2002 and 2007. And it was a specific kind of magic that they conjured and I don't know if it can be done again the same way I'm excited to find out but if you have not played Metroid Prime you absolutely should there really is no other game quite like it and as a result it also means that just it's from 2002 but it does not feel dated in the way most 2002 games would I love this game yeah, as I said on the last podcast, that's probably like one of my more like it's because I did play it but I never finished it I got like seven hours in and that was that must have been, like, right when it came out. So I think I maybe hadn't even played Halo when I played Metroid Prime for the first time. And so wow. this was a long time ago for me. Yeah. So I probably need to revisit that game at some point point. figure out a way to do that. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of you, I, I played it when it came out in 2002. Uh, I owned it. But I never beat it. it. It's not a kid's game, you know, in that right, way. Yeah. Um, it's it's not like it's super violent or anything. It's just very cerebral. But, you know, I went back to it. I think I played 1 and 2 in full on the Wii disc finally in... 2013 or 14 or something like that. I would have talked about it on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, it was on the podcast. Um, and it just, it, God, it endures. It's it's so good. And like I said, it is interesting to see the pockets where I think Metroid Prime has had influence, like a Dark Souls or a Batman Arkham Asylum, and yet those games are, in every other way, nothing like Metroid. Right, yeah. So it's a really interesting thing. But that's my number four. Well, for your number four was a game that endured. My number four is also a game that endured. It is the oldest game on my list, which probably tells people exactly what it is. I have a guess. Yes. My number four game is The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Starcraft and all like the other most important games of that, like the you know that fucking century, basically. Um, yes, Ocarina of Time. This is also like with Halo Three because this was on my old list. I think these were also yes, Halo Three and Ocarina of Time were both right next to each other, and they have both moved up one one notch together, which nice. is interesting. I didn't know that when I made this list; it just sort of worked out that way. Um, I've talked about Ocarina of Time on a number of different occasions on this podcast, so it is in certainly in no way a surprise to people that it's this high up on my list. But one of the reasons why I think it is this high, I think if if you if we had made this list like basically around this time or a little bit earlier than this time last year, I think Ocarina of Time would be a little bit lower on the list because it had been a long time since I played it. But when you very kindly let me borrow your Wii U to let me play Breath of the Wild, I also took the liberty of playing through Ocarina of Time after I finished Breath of the Wild being like, fuck it, he has Ocarina of Time on here. I don't want to set up my old Wii and it's like because Ocarina of Time is the one virtual console game I ever bought on the Wii. I was like, I just want this. I just want to play it again um, because my Nintendo sixty four is in the wind somewhere because my brother did something stupid. Does something I don't want to get into. Um, so I don't have a great way of playing the original Ocarina of Time. 
And so, you know, I tried to emulate it sometime like years ago, and I was like, ah, that, this is that game right. has really finicky emulation. Yeah, it's not it's not a great way to play that game. And I would also say playing it on the Wii U is also not the best way to play it because even though the N sixty four controller is a piece of turd, dog shit, bullcrap. Um, it, the game was also so designed to be played on that terrible, awful, chalky fucking joystick that the Wii U version, like, the joystick is calibrated so poorly that it's just like... I mean, Some the, of the minigames are almost impossible to play on the Wii U version. The way you would want to play it now is the 3DS version, yeah. probably, but you don't have a 3DS. Yes, I don't have a 3DS. And, like, I also want, like... But there's a part of me that's like, I want the original shit too. This is that was the closest I could get to the original shit. I want, I want to go into the menu and fucking change the iron boots by hand each time, motherfucker. I want that fucking watered down kid shit. I want to feel the pain of the water temple. I, it's like the only way I can live. It's the only way I can get through it. And it was one of the great things about playing it again was I got stuck at the water temple at the exact same spot I do every single time where I miss one fucking small key in one stupid chest near the beginning and then I get most of the way through the temple and realize I don't have a small key. Is like, where the fuck did I miss it? And I have to re-explore the whole thing like three times over. Be like, oh, it was under the... It's like, oh, it was in the couch cushions the whole time. This is bullshit. Um... But that aside, or partially because of that, you know, my love for Ocarina of Time is enduring. I played this game very close to its release um, on the N64 and and have revisited it many times over the years. But it was in particular that last replay, which was the first time I played through the game again since probably like 2011 or 2012 when I played it on the Virtual Console on the Wii. So it had been a long time, you know, like like it was like all of college, you know, went by and I hadn't touched Ocarina of Time basically. Um, and so replaying it again with that much distance and that much perspective, I gained so much more respect for the game in places that I had always liked the game, but didn't like, hadn't really approached it in a more academic sense to appreciate it. And that's where it gets, um, my first, maybe like the most important of the awards it has is, I just called it the game for all ages, because that is what Ocarina of Time is to me now, is this perfect game about childhood and adolescence and adulthood and like the the intersections of those three things and about aging and it's the kind of thing that i think is basically impossible to appreciate when you play it as a kid because you don't have the perspective but playing it as somebody who's 25 years old it's i see so much now of like oh my god like this is so much of why i fell in love with this game and so much of also why like the whole Zelda community, their like Legend of Zelda community, fell in love with this game so much to the extent that like when Wind Waker came out, they threw a giant hissy fit because it's like I want to play as adult Link, I don't want to play as dumb little kid Toon Link, I want to be an adult. Is that Ocarina of Time explores that really awkward space of you are not quite a kid, you're not quite an adult, you're this weird like in this middle ground where there's so many things about you that are incredible, incredibly childish and yet there are things about you that are very mature and that people don't appreciate about you that are very mature and Ocarina of Time and Link as a character in Ocarina of Time like literally exists in that strange middle space of where he is this kid at the beginning of the game he goes on this this adventure to get the three spiritual stones and then gets basically against his will projected seven years into the future into a body that's 17 years old that you know he's hit puberty his voice has dropped all that shit it's like he's 16 now and he wears he's got an earring I don't know when like the sage of light pierced his fucking ears while he was a comatose in the fucking spirit realm or whatever but that happened I guess and he's got weird tights on now um, but yeah, but he, you know, he is both a teenager and a child and he has to move between those two spaces and you as a player must move between those two spaces to solve the puzzles in the later dungeons, like the shadow temple and the spirit temple. And that action I think is so incredible. And it's one of those things of where 
weirdly enough, I think Ocarina of Time is one of the more underappreciated, like, undersold games, even though it is, like, the Citizen Kane of video games. I mean, Shinmu is the Citizen Kane of video games. I proved that on Podcast Forever ago. But Ocarina of Time is, like, one of, and often hailed as one of the best video games ever. I obviously very much agree with that. It's the seventh samurai of video games. Exactly. Yes, it's it's one of those of like the Rashomon. People just adore this game and recognize it, and it's it's lauded with critical praise. But I think a lot of that critical praise is weirdly slightly misaimed, and that it is it is at stuff that is incredible about Ocarina of Time. It has and, and a gorgeous soundtrack, just an incredible soundtrack, and in the way it uses music and the Ocarina mechanic is incredible. It's got amazing temple design and world design and revolutionary, but it's still so much fun to go back to. I think this game holds up incredibly oh, yeah. well you know it's just got great quests it's got great like interesting fun characters um it moves so well it's got a, a fucking amazing ending is so much about the game is amazing in terms of like the combat is even like you know it's, it's simple but it's got a richness to it that is, is pretty remarkable especially given you know it's one of the first combat systems of its type um and people lavish praise on the game for all that stuff but i think people kind of miss that there is something way deeper at the heart of this game and the ideas and the themes that it's exploring and for me i I know i've talked about it on the podcast before but i always go back to this moment at the end of the game where you have saved the day you've defeated ganon you've rescued princess zelda and then and everybody's partying and like you know the the camera zooms around for like all the fucking places you've been like Lon Lon Ranch and everybody's having like a fucking bonfire dance and it's very much like the end of Return of the Jedi in a lot of ways um and then kind of very privately Princess Zelda says like I'm going to send you back seven years into the past back to the child body that you were so you can live out these seven years you've missed and then the last shot of the game is one of the early scenes of Link as a kid coming into uh, Hyrule Castle sneaking in great little like weird little stealth mission there and it's him encountering Princess Zelda as a child for the first time and then meeting and then there's this great shot of them on like profile with Princess Zelda standing up on the steps and Link looking up at her and then it fades to sepia tone and like the end comes up in the middle of the screen and since it's a Nintendo 64 game, it just stays there. And it's like you have to reset the console because it's like there's just nothing else. It's like you're done. Like you don't save. There's no new game plus. It's like it just stays on that image until you're done. And that moment I think is so richly textured and detailed in a thematic storytelling sense of that there is this – for me as a player, like this conflicting emotion of – do you want to like like people when you play it as a game people want to be adult link people wanted to be adult link so bad they fucking rejected wind waker which is an amazing beautiful game in, in so many ways um and but they just like the mass effect 3 ending style just like fucking like hated it and that game has had to like crawl its way back to be to people like calming down and be like oh wait no this game is also amazing but it's because when you play Ocarina of Time as a kid, you so desperately want to be Adult Link because he's so fucking cool. He's got an earring. He's got the Master Sword. He can get the big-ass Goron Sword and smash some shit up. He's got hover boots. He's got a bow and arrow. He can ride a Pona around. He doesn't have the fucking boomerang in this fucking fairy slingshot and this butter knife you call a sword. You know, he's not this little twerp. He's big, cool Adult Link. And everyone wants to be Adult Link when you're a kid. And then when you're an adult and you get to that spot and you're like... I very much felt on that second playthrough that this is no, like, yeah, I want to live those memories again. I want to go back to the days when, you know, it's it's slightly different time scale for like referencing this list. Like, go back to when I could just play World of Warcraft and Halo 3 and like my biggest care in the world was like how the fuck am I going to mod out the dumb gunshot sound effect in World of Warcraft, right? Like, I need to figure out this weird technical bullshit. And those kind of like carefree, like younger childhood memories. And, and Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time is a game that explores that space with such 
like deafness and grace and it's so beautifully constructed in that way that I think it has a thematic coherence and a story and like storytelling chops that people so do not really appreciate. I think this is the thing that I meant on the last podcast when I said I think so much of our criticism of games is too story focused. And what yeah. I mean is cinematic literary story focused, yeah. right? Because I think Ocarina of Time has easily the best story in a Zelda game, one of the best narratives in any video game ever by yeah. far, but it's not a cinematic story. It's not a like here we're going to watch a big cutscene where cool things happen with specific framing and all this. It's it's so much more quiet and evocative and video game-esque, which it's okay. Yeah. You don't have to be cinematic. You can be video game-matic, right? That's right. okay. And Ocarina of Time so excels on that. Yeah, it's an incredible story. But then, of course, you also have to talk about a little bit of the gameplay stuff. Um, and that's the other award I've given it is the Ray Harryhausen Special Recognition for Remarkable Achievements in Adventuring. Because yep. for me... Like, it has all the great storytelling, all that, and the music and the texture of it is incredible. But also, it is just like, and this was the thing I was so convinced of on my second playthrough, especially like contrasting it with Breath of the Wild, where I respect your love for Breath of the Wild, but for me, that game didn't work for me. And it became very clear upon playing Ocarina of Time is that Ocarina of Time is like the perfect adventure in that everything in that game, I talked about this with God of War, everything in that game feels like it's custom made. Like every every power-up you get feels like it's a specific new power-up. And it's not, I get like a million shrine orbs or I get like a billion feathers or like whatever. You know, you have like the heart pieces are like the one that's kind of like that. But otherwise, you, you know, if you want to get a bigger bomb bag, it's not like I have to go do the five side missions that, like, you know, unlock the thing that gets me the bomb bag. It's, oh, there's this big weird Goron dude rolling around in the middle level of Goron City. And if you, yeah, I have to stop him with a bomb. And if I time it right, he will give me a big bomb bag, you know. Or if I want to get, you know, the bigger quiver, I have to go do this, like, specific mini game. That's the only mini game likely in the game where you go to the fucking bazaar and you do that thing. And that's how you get the quiver. Or if you want ice arrows, you have to do the, like, the archery horseback you know, the mini game and that whole thing in the Gerudo village and like all those things or getting the fire arrows, a lot of stuff that is like not necessary for passing the game, but are so richly, you know, add to your tool set and add to the sense of you being this like, you know, Lord of the Rings style adventure that's getting like the mithril chain mail and sting and all that kind of stuff. And then like progressing through this, this epic quest, you want to have all these cool little upgrades that feel valuable and significant and it's you know and again it's stuff as big as like the fire arrows that you don't need to get in that game but it's fucking cool to have them and they help a lot of puzzles or all three of the spells are totally unnecessary you do not need to get them you can complete that game without having the fucking dins fire and ferrer's wind and all that stuff but if you go for that stuff you have access to these abilities and each one of those are in unique locations where you have to do different things to get them and like do small optional dungeons to find this stuff and that element of this world feeling really well and truly handcrafted down to like the most specific details, the specific upgrades, you don't feel like you're repeating things over and over again. You know, like when you get a Pona, when you get a horse, a Pona in Ocarina of Time, that's the only one of those you can get. And you get it through a very specific, like constructed way of getting it that is tailored for the player. And there's something definitely to say about like the open world, like wider um, the game design that has a lot of value of like being able to approach things your own way and it having this feeling of spontaneity that like something like Breath of the Wild has that can be magical in its own right. But there's some, something to me so utterly absorbing about the sense of, no, this is this like really sort of like artisan crafted experience, but also has a scope to it that is very rare in video games. And it's something that 
playing Ocarina of Time in, in the year 2017 when I last played it, it felt so much like there are still lessons about from this game that oh. we need to go back to and how and like reconsider some stuff we we think we know about open worlds. Oh, absolutely. Because so when I say like I really struggled with what Zelda to put on the list, it's because at a certain point I wanted to put two Zeldas on this list and I really considered breaking my one game per franchise rule and right. saying I'm gonna have Breath of the Wild and one of the others. Because Breath of the Wild I love, but it does not necessarily encompass the things I love about all the other Zelda games. Yeah. Because it's very different. And I don't necessarily want all future Zelda games to be like Breath of the Wild. I want to see another one in the Link to the Past Ocarina of Time tradition. Because they're that is one of my favorite kinds of games to play. Yeah. Because Ocarina of Time obviously is very ingenious and invented a lot of things on its own. But the thing it didn't invent is the structure. That's Link to the Past of you do the three things at the beginning, something bigger opens up, you have seven dungeons, I think it's fewer in Ocarina of Time, yeah. and then you do the final stuff, right? And in the middle of that, you have to, like, in the dungeon, you're going to get a cool upgrade, and then that's going to allow you to complete all these puzzles in the dungeon, and, like, as you're going through a dungeon the first time, you're going to be like, oh, I see something there, I'm going to need something to figure that out, right? And you get the power-up, and it feels so cool. It's the same reason I love Metroid. Like, Metroid and Zelda share a lot of DNA. Yeah. If you've only played one of those two series, you're going to love the other one. Like, uh, there's a lot shared there. Um, and I love that about it. And that's not really what Breath of the Wild is. But I do think Ocarina of Time... Like, there are individual Zelda games that I think do certain things better than Ocarina of Time. Like I said, my favorite 3D dungeons are probably in Twilight Princess. Um, you know, music, you could argue which ones, although Ocarina of Time has a phenomenal soundtrack. But I do think as an overall package, in terms of that classical style of Zelda design, Ocarina of Time is is everything. It is... Uh, practically, you know, perfect encapsulation of all that design ethos and a, a truly amazing thing. And I, I kind of wished I could have had it on my list as well, but I knew you were going to talk yes. about it. So I'm glad we get to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it's the, it's the great thing about us doing these podcasts together. It's yes. just like we, we have enough different interests that like our lists are different enough that it's cool and we can talk about different games, but enough common interests to be like, I can let Jonathan talk about that one so I can talk about this one. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and just a quick shout out to A Link to the Past. Also, just yes. while we're talking about yeah, it. Cause great game. There's no Ocarina of Time without A Link to the Past. It's true. I love that game to death. Ocarina of Time is my Legend of Zelda game. I I love it to death. I will always love it. And I was so thrilled when I replayed it to be like, this game is still so fucking good. I was very worried that it wouldn't, like, like, it would have felt aged to me. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to play the original version is like, just give me the real shit. I need to know. And it's like, I do know it's still so good. And the Forest Temple is still the best temple in the Zelda game. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And uh, if you do have a 3DS and I haven't played it, the 3DS version is great. It's a it's a very yeah. respectful restoration. If yeah, if you're playing Ocarina of Time for the first time now, that's the version you should play. But yeah. for me, like I I need the original like version. Oh, totally. Of right? I'm just giving it a shout out yeah. of like it's because that's one where you could easily mess up Ocarina of Time if you don't do it right, and they didn't. It's a really beautiful redo of the game. It's one of the most gorgeous games on the 3DS. It plays very well in that format. Um, having that extra screen. Like, I'm actually used to that with a lot of Zelda games because all the 3D ones I've played other than Breath of the Wild, I've played with a two-screen setup. Right, on the Wii U versions, right? On the yeah. Wii U versions, too. So I'm used to having all the game stuff up here, like I'm playing, and then all my maps and equipments are on the second screen, which is a great way for Zelda to work. Oh, yes, yeah. And it is just one thing, like... Because I do think they're probably going to take those Wind Waker and Twilight Princess HDs and put them on the Switch. I hope they do. But I will miss having that second screen because it was one of the best uses of the Wii U. Um, but, you know, still have Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask on the 3DS, and they're yep. very they very suited to that. So. Yes, in particular those two because there's a lot of Iron Boots switching happening in yep. Ocarina of Time and a lot of mask switching in Majora's Mask that got pretty fucking tedious, I can tell you. 
All right. You want to move on to our number threes? What's your number three, Jonathan? My number three is Super Smash Brothers. And it is all of them. It is my other cheat. It's like, it's all of them and none of them. It is just Super Smash Brothers. Because Super Smash Brothers is, in one way, five discrete games. N64, GameCube, Wii, Wii U, 3DS. But it is also just Super Smash Brothers. This ongoing thing that I have been playing almost my entire life. Uh, since the 90s, I've been playing before this millennium, for fuck's sake. And it evolves, and it changes, and it goes back, and it goes forward. But it is, at the end of day, end of the day, always Super Smash Brothers. I can remember the first time I saw this game so vividly that the memory almost hurts. I remember the friend's house up the street where I first saw him boot up the N64. I remember the room we were in. I remember the size of the TV. I remember being on the floor being not six feet tall, but as a little kid, and looking up at the TV, which you had to do right, when you were yeah. a kid sometimes. And I remember seeing the character select screen for the first time. I remember what the weather was out like outside on that day. It was summer. It was very green and hot. I remember holding the N64 controller to select my character. I remember not knowing who Link was at the time because I did not own an N64. I had not played a Zelda game. And but I, he was adult Link, so you know he was really cool. Yes. And I, I that's who I picked, the, I think. And, and I remember the announcer saying, I thought the announcer was saying Lee, not Link, because it's very hard to hear on the yeah. N64 because the voice chip is not great. Um, I remember, I think I must have picked Pikachu the first time, because that's my memory. I knew Pikachu the best. I remember seeing stages like Hyrule Castle for the first time, and I just remember that distinct, powerful sensation of falling head over heels in love at first sight for this most magnificent of games. Smash Bros. was not necessarily my first video game obsession. That honor probably goes to Pokemon, as I talked about last time, although they're very closely linked, because this is 99, Pokemon came to the States in 98, so it couldn't have been... You know, much they would have been around the same time for me, right? Um, but it was the first and maybe most powerful experience of video game love at first sight I've ever had. Uh, and that love has not abated in, and I feel so fucking old to say this, next year it will be 20 years Jeez. since I laid eyes on Super Smash Brothers. I loved playing Smash Bros. so much, I remember begging my parents for an N64. Um, that was the first video game console I ever owned. It, a home console. I had a Game Boy before then. Game Boy Color, I should say. Um, but I remember that Christmas, 99, we got the N64 as my first gaming console. Uh, complete. They got us multiple controllers and a Smash Brothers cart so we could play the game. Uh, they also got us Ready to Rumble Boxing, which was not very good. No. It did not get as much play as Super Smash Brothers. Yeah. Uh, I still have the cart for Super Smash Brothers. My brother and I still boot up the old system from time to time to play it because it's so goddamn good all these years later. We played the shit out of Smash Brothers on N64 when the GameCube came out. Um, Melee was not a launch game, but it was like a month later. So like by the time Christmas rolled around, the GameCube and Melee were out, and that was the most we ever wanted something for Christmas was a GameCube and Super Smash Brothers Melee because we had spent two years playing Smash Bros. like every day and then we got Melee and played that every day for years. Brawl was 2008. I was so goddamn hyped for that. Played that all the time when that came out. Even though Brawl I didn't like as much as the other ones. Smash 4, I kind of snuck up on me but man, I played the shit out of that when it came out. We had, I, we actually found some of these when we were moving earlier this year out of my childhood home. Um, 
we had printed out a bunch of game facts guides oh, for, geez, yeah. for different games. But like, I remember we, doing that. Yep, we had them for a bunch of different things. We had binders with three hole punched game facts guides, and we had Smash Bros. One and Two, original and melee, with all the character guides and how you unlock things. Because like, you know, unlocking things in a video game seems a lot easier now when you can just do a Google search on your phone. But back then it was like, you know, with Melee, it was this giant character select screen, but there's so many to unlock. How are we going to unlock all these characters? And as kids, it took a long time. You did not beat Melee in a weekend and get everything. It was months and months of work to get all this stuff. It kind of still is if you want to get everything. In oh, like yeah, the like modern all the trophies Bros. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I'm st- I have one thing left to get in Smash Bros. for 3DS. I probably never will because it's to beat uh, solo mode on Intensity 9, which is fucking impossible. But, yeah. Um... Other than that, I've, I've, I did finally get everything on that. It took 100 hours. Um, but yes, I I just... Smash Brothers is a series that, like... It has to be at least this high. I really considered putting this at number two and flipping it with the next game. But I think this is the right place for me. Because Smash Brothers has just been the most constant thing in my video game life. In terms of a game that I play, you know, at least a couple times a year. If not a couple times a month, some version of it. You know, now that it's on... 3DS, it's been very easy to just boot that up whenever I want and play a little of it. And soon it's going to be on the Nintendo Switch, which could be really dangerous for me and a lot of other people. Right, yeah. Because um, I'm going to have it with me everywhere. And, you know, I, I just... It's so many memories. It's so much nostalgia. But it is also genuine love for what a unique, weird, wacky blend of gameplay this thing is. Uh, I love that it has been a window into all these other characters. You know, I was introduced to most of Nintendo's ovoire through these games. Uh, Link in that first game, learned who Fox and Kirby were. Uh, Fire Emblem was introduced to America via Melee and Roy and Marth, who were almost taken out of the North American version, thankfully left in. And then it was all the fans being like, these guys are cool. And then they gave us Fire Emblem GBA where we met Lin, who is still not in a Smash Bros. game, which is too bad. But, you know, well, maybe one day. Um... You know, recently they've brought in other characters from other franchises, and that's been cool. It is this glorious celebration of Nintendo. You know, one of my favorite feelings is to get obsessed with a Nintendo franchise, like Metroid, a couple years ago when I played every Metroid game. And then I went back to Smash Brothers and got really into playing as Samus and Zero Suit Samus and on their stages. That's just a really cool thing to do. I love that it is that celebration, but it is also a transcendence of all those series because Smash Brothers. And I think it's unique among crossovers this way, in that it is its own thing that people love as its own thing, above and beyond those characters and franchises it represents, right? Yeah. You do not have to, like, with a lot of crossover games, like, I don't know, when they do, like, a, a um, Shonen Jump game, right? Yeah. I can't recommend that if you have not ever read a Shonen Jump thing, right? God, no. You have to know a couple of them. You have yeah. to know, like, Goku and Naruto and Luffy, like, pick three and you'll be okay, but you have to know a couple of them. You don't with Smash Bros. You can, and a lot of people have. I think there are a lot of people who have played Smash Bros. and maybe know Mario and Yoshi, but don't necessarily play Mario and Yoshi yeah. games, right? But you can just play Smash Brothers for that reason. Uh, and you discover them there and love them for their place in the fighting game all their own. And that is such a unique thing for a crossover. So again, it's this blend of nostalgia, but also I love the games for what they are. Um, Smash 4, when that came out in 2014 with both the 3DS and Wii U version, both of which I've put in at least 100 hours into, like, that really... Because that was the first one I played as what I would say an adult, right? You know, I was in college when those came out. And I really got a deeper appreciation for the mechanics of this game and how they build stages and characters. Um, 
you know, it's a game that really has endured. I, my love for Smash Brothers has never really abated. It's been a lifelong thing for me, as I say, going on 20 goddamn years now. We've got another one coming out this year that I am very, very unreasonably excited for because we give more Smash Brothers. It's just, you know, if you've played it, you know it. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It is Super Smash Brothers. And I, I couldn't love this silly series even anymore if I tried. Yeah, no, Smash Brothers is great. Like, it's it's the kind of thing for me, my love of Smash Brothers stopped with Melee, and I couldn't... Brawl was such a thing that I was like, I can't do this. Melee was was it, that I, I feel like it's hard for me to get back into that mind space of Smash Brothers. But, yeah, it's... it's but if, you know what? If, yeah. if I had, in a couple months, my Nintendo Switch here on the table, and I said, Sean, here's a controller, you want to play some Smash Brothers? I would say yes, yeah. Yeah, that'd be and fun. I'd go and I'd play a solid snake, and I'd go like hide in a weird part of the level and just shoot you with remote-controlled missiles, missiles over and over again and break the game from you like I did with Brawl. I'm betting they fixed that. <laughs> Hopefully. They Probably. Must Knowing how like in, um, like into the minutiae they're getting with uh, Smash Ultimate... It feels like that should be, be in the next Smash Brothers Nintendo Direct. Is it just opens with like even because I remember specifically it was like I think it was the Donkey Kong stage. There was like a spot you could stand. Where you're basically inaccessible because you're like right between two platforms that you couldn't quite get through, and you could just hit people with missiles. Yeah. And they should just put that in. It was just the next Nintendo Direct. You just smashing yeah. Brawl. Snake. Brawl was definitely my least favorite. You know, there was because that was on the Wii, and the Wii was also a GameCube. There was a yeah. point where my brother and I stopped putting in the Brawl disc and just put in the Melee disc and went back to that for a while, yeah. which I think a lot of people did. But I still loved Brawl. I loved that weird fucking subspace emissary. Subspace mode. emissary is great. It's, people should at least watch the cutscenes on YouTube yeah. if they haven't seen it. There was a lot of cool stuff they did for Brawl. The music in Brawl is still one of the just the best yeah. soundtracks assembled yeah. for any game ever because I think they did it all live orchestra. It's it's a really cool thing. I love that. I love Masahiro Sakurai. I just love that yeah. there's this guy who has made it his life's work to make Smash Brothers games, and he is just open and out there talking about it all the time. I love the community around Smash Brothers. Yeah. It's a really cool community. I, you know, loving the game means not only playing it, but then going and watching others play, which is really fun in its own right. I think Smash Bros. as eSport kind of things go is one of the most entertaining to watch because yeah. people who are good at Smash Bros are really good at Smash Brothers. Yes, yeah. Which is, here's one other thing that kind of, I think, sums up how much I love Smash Brothers. This is my number three game of all time. I love this to death. I'm not good at Super Smash Brothers. There are not many fighting games. Nay, maybe there are no other fighting games where I can say I'm just not that good at it, and yet I play it obsessively. Yeah. And it's, it is that weird thing where clearly Smash is something that works for the hardcore audience. Because oh, yes, people yeah. who get hardcore about Smash... Get hardcore yeah. about Smash. Melee has been like one of the most enduring games at Evo, which is the biggest fighting game tournament for years. Oh, like yeah. it's got, I think it might be the oldest game that is still regularly played since Street yep. Fighter V came out. Had a huge tournament just last year. I mean, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. And so you can have that side of it, but it also clearly, truly works for casual players or people in the middle or something. Like yeah. any, truly anybody can enjoy Smash Brothers. And I don't, certainly for fighting games, I don't think there's any other game that approaches it quite like that. No. Even Street Fighter or something, you have to have some level of, like, technical interest in it to get into it. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. But Smash Brothers, if you just want to go in there and mash buttons and see the cool colors and the characters and the music and the stages and all that, it it really is a magic trick how well it threads all those needles, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. So, number three, Super Smash Brothers, you're awesome. It is awesome, yes. Yes. All right. So... Your number three was a game that's been with you your whole life. My number three is a game that's been with me for three years. Okay. It's been three years since May 19th. I know what um, it is. The Witcher 3, Wild Hunt. With the keeping of the 
is the best RPG I've ever played, um, which is like my favorite or best Western RPG. I just so let's say like Western RPG and JRPG are different categories in my head. All right, um, because they are very different kinds of games. But The Witcher Three Wild Hunt because it comes from that tradition, kind of like Kotor. I'm very literally like it comes from the tradition of Baldur's Gate because uh, CD Projekt Red that made The Witcher Three Wild Hunt one of their earliest game projects they tried to make was a Polish localization of Baldur's Gate. So it yes. actually kind of literally comes from that same tradition. It comes from how do we blend tabletop RPG stuff with more design systems and games and more direct narrative t- storytelling stuff. Um, and it, it is as of 2018, I think is the crowning achievement in that like lineage of video games. One that had been dormant for a long fucking time because like the the closest was Dragon Age Origins probably um, for the Xbox 360 in that generation, which even then was kind of felt like it kind of got away from it in some ways. In and Mass Effect feels like it was very much its own different kind of action RPG thing. And The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, while it doesn't have the turn based sort of combat thing, it's definitely very active, kind of Dark Souls esque combat stuff it has at its heart such this like old school fantasy rpg like aesthetic and style and love that shines through and feels like it's a game out of like out of time that's come from somebody somewhere else um it's a game we talked about a lot in 2015 i gave like a whole passion speech at the end of, of that game of the year thing because you hadn't played the game yet i was like fuck it i'm just gonna spoil the bloody baron quest just to get you to play the game you, you did it worked yes it worked um, in The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, fuck, man. Like, I don't even kind of know where you start with the game. Um, it's well, really big. It's very big, and there's a lot of stuff, um, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. There's one, the first, where I'll start, one of the, my awards I give it is Outstanding Medal of Genre Valor for Redeeming Open Worlds. Oh, yeah. Because in 2015, um, we were in a dark place with video games in some ways of that. You had 2013 was this weird transitional year where, like, halfway through 2013, you had a lot of interesting games like Bioshock Infinite and Last of Us come out at the tail end of the PS3 and Xbox 360. And then you had, like, the early, like, launch stuff for the PS4 and the Xbox One, which was the only interesting stuff there was, like, Assassin's Creed 4, which is also an Xbox 360 game. And then you had 2014, where if you had a Wii U, you were probably pretty happy because that was, again, I think we talked about this on the podcast recently. That was the year that, like, people were like, hey, the Wii U's pretty good. It's got bayoneted in fucking Donkey Kong and all this cool shit. That was the year where it didn't seem like a foregone conclusion that the Wii U would die young. Yeah, it was this, like, realization of, no, maybe there is some life left in this thing. And then 2015 happened. It was like, no, actually, no, they need to make a new console. But it was, <laughs> But in 2014, everything else was like... You know, it wasn't like there were only bad... Like, there were good games that came out of the PS4 and the Xbox One. You had Far Cry 4, was was a great game. You had um, Wolfenstein, The New Order. That was a really great game. And there's other stuff that came out. Velocity 2X. Velocity 2X. I'll just, I'll just sure. throw yes. that out there. I, I I tell people to play that game when I can. Yeah, so that's a, that's a fun game. Because was that for free on PS Plus yeah, at some point? Yeah, Um And then you had... Of course, you had Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor, which is a game I didn't like very much, but you know they won a bunch of Game of the Year awards inexplicably. Weird dude bros in College yeah. Storms liked it. And then and then Shadow of War came out, and then all of a sudden, a lot of people were like, oh, wait, oh, we don't like these games. And then a lot of people were like, it, it, the, it's, the first one is bad, too. And they're like, I now I see what you're saying. I'm glad that now we are in this united moment of Miller Shadow of Mordor was kind of mediocre. Um, had a, one good idea, and the rest of it wasn't that great. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of a dark, like, middling time for a lot of games, particularly, like, the kind of, like, big Western AAA games that had been so dominant in the Xbox 360 generation. Even when games were good, they were problematic. Like, I think one of the things that really 
was the reason I didn't play Witcher 3 when it came out, like, I played it six months later, but, like, when it, like, in May, was end of 2014, one of the big games was Dragon Age Inquisition. Dragon Age Inquisition is a good game. There's no way to argue against oh, that yeah. being a, a yeah. very good game. But it, like, it really defined for me that year the unbearable excess of open world design at the end of that last generation. Yes. Of, like, the way you did an open world game was you made a big fucking empty world, and you threw ungodly amounts of shit in there for people to do, and you made it grindy as fuck, and you made it utterly soul-crushing. And I was... You can go back and listen to the end of 2014 podcasts where I am probably literally pulling my hair out talking about open world games. Oh, yeah. And being you sad. You were d- d- I was livid done. in many ways. Yeah. I was... If you had told me that in a couple of years I would have an open world game on my top ten of all time, I would have said, fuck you, I will never have an open world yeah. game. And yes, The Witcher 3 wrote in like a shining prince in, in you know, White Knight to save yeah. the genre, even though there's no shining princes in, in, you know, White Knights. In yeah, in, in the actual game, yeah. Cause again, like a little more context, 2014 was the year that we both saw Watch Dogs and Assassin's Creed Unity. Jesus. Both of those games came, I mean, you know, the Watch Dogs was the beginning of the year, Unity was the end of the year, but still, both of those games came out in 2014. This is just like, open world games were in a fucked up place. It was so much just like barf on the map. It was, as you said, like Inquisition, it was so bloated. So like, even if there was a lot of good stuff, it was just like trying to find the diamonds in the mud, right? And then The Witcher 3 comes out and you play The Witcher 3 and it's just like, wait, there's something, there's something different here. And you get to the, the first area of the White Orchid area, um, which is very much like um, the, the plateau in Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, where it's this smaller area that contains more digestible, like easier to approach versions of the kind of thing you're going to be doing for the whole rest of the game. And it's like, here's some story stuff. Here's your first big monster hunt. Here's like a little like Witcher quest. Here's like a more like sort of human focused side quest. Here's like a basic like sort of like loot cycle of you kind of getting a new weapon and that kind of stuff. All that sort of contained in this one area. And then most importantly, setting the tone and atmosphere and narrative structure of the world. And this is where I gave it the, and my second award. Fuck, I guess I have to read the Books Now Award for <laughs> Remarkable Accomplishments in Narrative Design and World Building. Because the world of The Witcher 3, which is obviously adapted from, from the series of novels from Subchowski, I think is how you say his name. I'm not very good with Polish. Um, which are really good, particularly the two short story collections are just phenomenal. If you're going to read any Witcher thing, those are the two things to read. Um, and so it's based in that source material, but so much work had to be done by CD Projekt Red to like breathe that to life. Because again, like it's, it's two short story collections with like, a, you know, a bunch of pretty sparse short stories and then a series of I think four or five novels that are more expansive, but also don't go into the kind of detail that a video game needs to go into to build a world like this. And there's no movie, you know, there, there was a really cheesy TV show. I haven't seen it, but I've seen screenshots of the Polish TV show they made like the early 2000s based on the Witcher stuff. But they had to basically invent the visual language and visual culture and like that design of this entire world and, and of Velen and Novigrad and the Skellig Isles and then also Toussaint from the Blood and Wine, which, by the way, with Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, I'm including Hardenstone, the Hardenstone Blood and Wine in there because they're both fucking amazing um, and expand the game in great ways. But yeah, CD Projekt Red had to build this incredible open world that had such a sense of tone to it. And, and I just remember so distinctly 
the the moment I fell in love with the game, which it wasn't just a moment, it was a like this whole play session where the first time I played the game, like I and I, I liked it because it got you know such great reviews, and I just kind of downloaded it, being like, "Fuck it, I have nothing to play." It's May 2015. The, I, I played The Witcher One. There's a podcast forever ago where I played The Witcher One on PC on Steam and being like, I played like 12 hours of it and just was done with that game because I didn't like it. And so I was like, ah, I kind of swore off Witcher because I thought it wasn't for me. And I just kind of downloaded it, played it for one night. I was like, this is pretty intriguing. This is cool. And got a little bit into White Orchid. And then the next night, I came back and played it. And that's when I did both the, the side quest in White Orchid where you help the brother sort of basically poke through this empty, like, desolate... Or not empty, but, like, desolate battlefield covered with dead bodies and mud and just, like, tattered banners of, from both sides... And just bodies strewn all over the place looking for his his lost brother and then finding him, like his brother who was in the battle, actually alive in this little hut off to the side with another, with a Nilfgaardian um, soldier also there. Like basically the two survivors of this battle from opposite sides who have decided, who have like, you know, both like gravely injured just in this little hut. And nothing else matters. And they're just like, we're probably both dead. And they just kind of become these weird friends in this hut. And you rediscover them. You have to navigate the weird politics of how do you have these, these you know, people from the north, um, forces or whatever the fuck it's called. I think that's the name of the king. Whatever the, the, the northern land is called. And, and the Nilfgaardians. And, like, how do we, you know, sort of bridge this gap? And, and those moments are just, like, walking around this body, this field of bodies and seeing the ghouls feasting on these corpses and, and getting the sense of, like, this is the world of the Witcher. Like, this is what these people live in. This is, the, like, the little shit in mud and blood that cakes this whole landscape. This is what it is. And then the other side quest I also played that night was the one in White Orchid where it's the first major Witcher contract you have to do the Noon Wraith. That's in the well, and this whole story of you walk into this little hamlet of like three or four houses that have been utterly destroyed, and and there's blood trails all over the place, and you're sort of investigating and figuring out what the fuck happened here, and reading these notes, and eventually you see that like there's this this body that's been dumped in the well, and going there, and it's this whole long thing of finding out what happened to kill this woman, and she was like executed and hanged by Nilfgaardians, and has come back as this noon wraith, and have to kill her and put her to rest, and the thing that was so magical about that side quest. Is that normally when I replayed the game, I never finished the game this on my second playthrough. I got very deep into it before I kind of fell off to play other things. Um, I realized, oh, you're supposed to get this quest by going up to a like quest board and get the piece of paper. And that's like how you do most of those quests. And I didn't do that the first time because I just stumbled into this town, this destroyed little village. And just investigated naturally and put the pieces together. And the fact that the quest worked 100% that way, it was kind of like what you were talking about with Breath of the Wild of like coming over that crest and realizing, oh, I'm in like the, the, the Rudo village or whatever, the, or the village of the, the weird bird people. Um, it was like that of, I have just stumbled into this quest, stumbled into this little story and, and walked into this town and now have to put this together and figure out what happened. And it was a cool thing of, in my version of that story, Geralt doesn't do it for the money. He does it because he just walked into this town and saw, like, what happened and feels like, oh, I guess I need to put this to rest. Like, I'm the only person here. I just have to put this 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 spirit down. And the quest, like, the writing works that you can you can believe that and, and see that quest that way. And that was when I really just sort of fell in love with the tone and atmosphere and style of this world that is so dark and grimy, but not quite in the normal dark fantasy ways that you come to expect from, like, Game of Thrones and, and that stuff. It has that very distinct Polish, like, Eastern European 
element to it of living under, you know, this, like, I mean, having hundreds of years of, like, shit piled on of, like, all those sort of Eastern European countries, that is very true. But then particularly more recently in history, like, you know, it, it was made from people that lived through, like, socialist dictatorships and, 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 like, the whims of the USSR and, like, the very harsh realities of living in that kind of world. And that's how that's the atmosphere and the culture in which these people who who like the primary creative forces making this game came up and of course then also Sapkowski who wrote the books and created the world it comes from that tradition of like dealing with these harshness the harshnesses of reality that a lot of games made in like western europe and in america and japan don't have that quality because the people who've made them are generally middle to upper class people that managed to get like a really great education in software design and, and have done very well for themselves and have a passion for this medium. And it's not like to put those people down, of course, like we're fucking like neatly middle class white dudes. It's like we don't have those kinds of problems either. But there's such a different perspective and like incredible sense of despair that can come across when it's almost like watching Godzilla or something where you feel the people that make this that made this game know a lot of what is actually going on here and are able to infuse it with such a sense of like reality and life and perspective that most stories just don't have particularly fantasy stories and there's no side of Witcher 3 where that is more true than the Bloody Baron quest which gets my I still can't believe they pulled this off award for best quest because it is you know I'm not going to do the whole, to talk through the whole quest again like I did in 2015 but it is Dealing with this guy who who is a wife beater, who has basically caused the death of his like unborn child and caused his child to be stillborn from beating his wife, and now has to deal with the consequences of that. And you, as Geralt, have to in order to continue on your quest to get Siri, walk him through this process and either basically say "fuck you, Blade Baron," or I like you are a piece of shit, but I will help you find like the least bit of like redemption or resolve or resolution to this crisis and trauma and tragedy that you have caused as as possible and going through and walking him through like having to go bury the like zombified monstrified version of that fetus is horrifying and is but it's also one of the most like touching and and strange things i've ever experienced in the game and and have been watching him having to lay down the body and repeat this you know chant from Geralt um the culminating in him having to give this this unborn child a name Dia and and put her to rest like it's such a powerful intensely powerful moment and the Witcher 3 is sprung with all kinds of moments like that and one of which is my other most favorite and I think it's one I don't think I ever talked about on the podcast is one that relates specifically more to the main stuff and the main characters and specifically your relationship with Yennefer where there's a late game quest in the Skellig Isles where um, the whole backstory of Geralt and Yennefer is they have kind of gotten together um, in their first adventure where Geralt ends up making this this wish on a genie's bottle or whatever to have their destinies tied together. It's a really good short story. It's a great fucking short story. And that's how their kind of relationship starts. And But then when you got to the Witcher games, I think the first Witcher, I don't know if they had the rights to all the characters, so they couldn't quite use Yennefer, or maybe they just chose not to use her. And that's where Triss, who is a character in the book and has kind of a fling with Geralt, but isn't really a full love interest, she kind of comes up from that and is like the main love interest in Witcher 1 and Witcher 2, and then is then one of the two primary love interests in The Witcher 3. And, and the way I played the game is I was very much like Triss was my love interest, and, and I think that's a really fun way to play the game. In particular, Blood and Wine has some cool shit with that. Um, but in particular, when you get to this quest with Yennefer, and it kind of you go back to this scenario of we have found another genie's lamp. She says it's like it's it's on this ship 
and that, that was lost out at sea at some point that was delivering this genie's lamp, and we have to go find it. And you have this whole ridiculous, amazing quest where, like, you, you find it, and you have this battle with this genie, and then over the course of that battle, it gets teleported to the top of a fucking mountain, which is very important, because it's just one of the most spectacular views, is you're on top of a massive snowy mountain in Skellig Isles on this fucking, like, like big-ass, like, you know, the frigate kind of boat that's just hanging, like, uh, off the side of the, this cliff. And so you go through that whole thing, you defeat the genie, you get the genie's bottle, and you find out that Yennefer wants, the whole reason you're on this quest is that Yennefer wants to make a wish to cancel out the last wish because she wants to know if the relationship and feeling she has with Geralt is real or if it was made from this lamp and from this wish that he made years and years ago from their perspective. And you are then basically, that is like the split choice you have for her storyline of whether you have, you start a, or like recommit to a romantic relationship with Yennefer or not. And at that point in the game, I had already decided uh, Triss's love interest I'm more interested in. I'm going to stick with her. And the scene that plays out between Geralt and Yennefer when you decide not to go with her is so beautifully acted and written. And and also just like the camera and the cinematography and the view of them sitting off like with their legs dangling off the edge of this ship on the top of this like basically Mount Everest looking out at the ocean in front of them and and Yennefer basically says no my like you know this wish is gone but my feelings for you are still real and then if you turn her down Geralt just turns to her and says the magic is gone and then kind of like the scene like kind of zooms back out and goes away and that line in the delivery of the magic is gone and that moment has stuck with me so powerfully because it says so much and allows you as the player to read so much of what you want to in that moment of like do you mean because like he's for me it is something of where for my version of Geralt he is still very much attracted to Yennefer but he is no longer in a place where he can be in that relationship anymore because it is a like dangerous relationship and that's like when then when I read the like that's something you understand just by playing The Witcher 3 when you read the books that becomes like abundantly clear and there's something about that sense of like he's able to sort of like put this down with something that is like the magic isn't gone in the sense of the relationship but the magic is gone in that they do not need to be tied together like the literal magic is gone he still probably cares for her and loves her but has decided to move on with his life and go for like the safer nicer sweeter relationship with Triss that is like awaiting him and that's such a was such a powerful moment for me in that game that comes across only as like a player experience can of that you make these choices the game reacts to those choices and the Witcher 3 is written so smartly to allow you to read what you need to read in that moment for the story and the characters that you have constructed and invested life into, not just the characters that they have written for you. And there really feels like there's this dynamic back and forth relationship with the writing and the story in The Witcher 3 that is so powerful that it is the kind of thing that I think Western RPGs have always aspired to and and have done well to varying degrees, but The Witcher 3 blew it out of the water for me. And it's one of the other reasons why it was easier for me to pick Knights of the Old Republic than Mass Effect earlier on my list was that The Witcher 3 kind of takes Mass Effect's spot because I think The Witcher 3 does what Mass Effect did, but for me it does it even better. It actually, takes it to the next level. I actually agree with that because like, I, the reason Witcher 3 is not on my list is 
mostly because I think I'm less familiar with it than you are. Like, you know, I did play the full game and I fucking love it. It's amazing. One of the best games of the generation of all time. But I haven't had the time to play all the DLCs yeah. because they're not like little five hour no, DLCs. No, they're not short. No, they are um, basically games. Like, yeah. Blood and Wine is basically just another video game you can play. Yes. So one day I will, uh, I'm sure, but I have not yet. I have only played the game once. I did not, I've read the short stories. I have not read the whole cycle the way you have. Um, but like, so I really love the game. I just feel like I, I wasn't close enough to it yeah. to honestly put it on here and talk about it like at the depth you have, whereas I can still do that with Mass Effect. But I do think intellectually, I agree with that. I even said this earlier, like the Mass Effect trilogy, they did that over five years in three games. The Witcher 3 feels like it has the breadth and depth of an entire Mass Effect trilogy in one game. Yeah. Pre-DLC, before you get into all that other mm. stuff. Like when you get to the final hours of The Witcher 3, which has a very long like Return of the King-esque ending, right? right? Yeah. But in a video game terms, it's not 12 minutes, it's 12 hours or something, right? It really feels like you're wrapping up more than one video game. And I know it is technically it's The Witcher 3, but no one who played Witcher 3 played 1 and 2. Yeah, I didn't play 1 and 2. Yeah, so you don't have to. Like, I played the first 12 hours of 1, and I was like, nope, I can't do If it. you're afraid of, like, the 3 in Witcher 3, like, that actually would have been one good case of dropping the 3 on a yeah. game. Like, they didn't need... It's, it is the third one, but you don't need to know the other two. Um... You really do feel like the weight of like, oh my god, time has passed and things have happened. And the closest I think I could compare that to is some JRPGs with their length also have that sense. Like a certain um, series that rhymes with Bearsona that we might talk about later. Maybe. Um, I think has that effect when you get to the end of one of those games. But The Witcher 3, I agree, is kind of the only Western RPG other than a Mass Effect that has that impact. But it does it so organically and consistently through that one game. And the other thing, and I think you've been talking about this, that I just want to say about Witcher 3, is that it is one of the only games, if not the only game, where I would say genuinely you should and need to do every single thing you can do in the game. Yes, yeah. Maybe Mass Effect 2 is a good, good yeah. one like that too. But like there are, but also, but Mass Effect 2 is like 30 hours long to right. do everything. Witcher 3 is hundreds of, 100 plus hours long. Yes. Um, but like genuinely, you should do everything. There is no junk in this game, you know, Maybe you don't need to do all the Gwent stuff, but if you're into Gwent, you should, you should. do all the Gwent. The Gwent stuff is so good and recontextualizes Geralt as this like I, yeah. Witcher slash like professional card player that is every time you walk into a town, like her eyes all the the, the peasants and stuff is like. That guy knows how to play Gwent. I'm going to fucking get his cards. Yes. But, like, genuinely, every side quest, every piece of story, it is all of a piece. I don't think there's... It's one of the only games with a main quest, side quest system where I think those are virtually impossible to separate in my memory and in, I think, what the texture and context of the game is. Like, the game is the main story about Siri, but it is also the Bloody Baron quest. Yeah. And it is also every other side thing you do. There is no separation of quality or import to that. You know, it is... I honestly... I think it has lessons for video games, which we're already seeing other games yeah. adopt. I think it has lessons for TV shows and things like that, oh, too. It, absolutely, Because, yeah. like, The Witcher 3 tells this incredibly impactful, overarching story, but it also builds that through a lot of episodic short story kinds of things that keeps you pulled through. So it's a 100-hour game, but it does not feel like it is long in a sense of, like, dragging you along to that point. It feels like you want to come back and play more and more of it every time. And, like, you know, we're in a moment where TV shows, especially streaming shows on, like, Netflix is the worst at this, cannot decide. We have to be all serialized, and it's just 12 hours of shit that we 
dole out and then cut up, or it's 12 discrete episodes that don't link up much together. And it has to be one or the other. No, it doesn't. Just just put them together. Yeah. You can have your episodic building to the big thing. It's not a lesson. For TV, it's not even a lesson we should have to be relearning. Like, yes. we've known that at different points in TV's history, as recently as, like, the, the 2000s, right? Um, but The Witcher does it so beautifully. I think it's a, it's a lesson for any kind of long-form storytelling. You have to mix the macro and the micro. And it mixes the macro and the micro as well as I think you can. Yeah, which is also like, and that's the element of it. That's like one of the magic elements that makes the open world work is that yes. you, it's both like the presentation of the game, which is spectacular and it's such a gorgeous game, has such a great sense of art design, it has some of the most gorgeous sunrises and sunsets you'll ever see in a video game. It's got incredibly atmospheric, powerful, interesting, different music. This is another one of those where it's like the score of The Witcher 3 is very different than the scores of like, like other big Western RPGs, like a Skyrim that goes for that more traditional fantasy, like heavy horns kind of thing. And The Witcher 3 is like this very interesting, different kind of... Very Polish. Yes, very Polish. You feel that a lot. And so it's like all of that presentation stuff and just the design of the world and sitting in the world and running through like the, the branches of like the forest and everything is immaculate and perfect and amazing. But it, it is also then the, the major points of contact between those spaces of the side quests and the Witcher contracts and just like the random bandit camps or whatever you run into and the bigger main quests or like the very meaty side quests like a Bloody Baron kind of thing that are basically main quests. All of that stuff is layered in the perfect way to make it so that you're always constantly doing different things. You're, you're, you're spending different amounts of investment in different things because it's like they're all interesting, but they require different amounts of time for you to commit to. And they, they, they roll out over different spans of time, which is perfect. It also, one thing I love so much about The Witcher 3, it's also going back to kind of like that KOTOR stuff of the detective quest that I talked about. Witcher 3 has so much of that also of feeling like, a bunch of the stories it tells are basically stories in totally different genres. And there's some that are like basically not fantasy at all. Um, there are some stories that they tell that are like high, high fantasy and like ridiculous high fantasy magic bullshit that happens. Some of that around Siri and the Wild Hunt is like that and going to fucking different dimensions and shit that you do later in that game, which is awesome and weird. And like the one weird different dimension Wild Hunt dude that's like invented cubist art in yep. some alternate reality is so good. Um, so it has all that stuff. But then it also has like this whole like troll slaying epic out of like like basically one of like the chapters of Beowulf in in Skellig Isles where you go to that whole island that is just dedicated to this one quest of slaying this giant troll monster you have um there's this beautiful chivalric style tale like I like straight out of fucking Gawain in the Green Knight in um the Blood and Wine has a lot of that stuff it just has a, there's some fairy tale stuff and like dark fairy tale stuff that's in there with the witches of the woods in Velen like so many different genres of fantasy and that kind of fiction are represented across a wide spectrum in The Witcher 3 that gives it this very rich texture to it that that is one of the reasons why it's like kind of unparalleled in, in its genre is that it gives you this breadth of material that is wider than anything else but also like the depth to which any, any of those individual examples go is much deeper than their equivalent in other games in the genre. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else to say about The Witcher? It's just so fucking good, and it's like, it's one of those, like, it doesn't matter that it came out three years ago, like, it is so, and it's, it's particularly, like, I'm glad that we're, you know, doing this in 2018, where it's become very evident how much influence it's had, it makes it very clear that, yes, it has earned its place on a list like this. I mean, it's a game that put 
a Polish video game company at on the map as one of the biggest developers in the world. Before 2015, how often did you hear the term Polish video game company? <laughs> Never. Yeah. Not to put down CD Projekt Red's no. previous work. It's just like that was a galvanizing moment for I mean, the world stage. The Witcher Three is one of the best selling games of this generation. Like yeah. it's it's in the top ten selling games of this generation. You know, it, it, that's like. That's crazy. Like one last note before we move on to your number two is just if people are interested in The Witcher Three, I have to recommend a really great documentary series done by NoClip on YouTube. That just it's like a five or six part documentary series, which is part of about thirty minutes long, going into the history of CD Projekt Red as a Polish developer, talking about their origins, and then and then breaking down the different elements of how they designed The Witcher Three. It's it's deeply interesting. The chapter in Jason Trier's book Blood, Sweat, and Pixels is also very very yes. good. Yeah, that's one of the other great things about The Witcher Three is if you want. To learn more about it and how it was made, there, is, there are multiple sources out there that give you a, a deeper look than you get for almost any other game. Yep. All right. So should I move on to my number two? What's your number two, Jonathan? All right. Moment of truth, I feel like, because we're yes, getting there's, down to the there's wire. A, there's a lot writing on what our number two and one choices are. Number two, Super Mario 64. Woohoo! Yeah. Some Mario that had to be here. There's no way you made your list without Mario. And I had this realization when you were talking about your number three game. Like, wait, he hasn't said a Mario game yet. Yeah, it, uh, it would be out of character for me if I didn't yeah. know Mario game on here. Because when I think of the word game, say the word game to me, what does that evoke? If I did the like the, the therapeutic yeah. like you know call and response kind of thing. Hey, Jonathan, game. Mario. That's the first thing that comes to mind. It's not because I think it's the, the greatest achievement in the history of gaming, although you could make that argument easily. But Mario is just, that defines game to me. And when I think of Mario, the thing that defines Mario for me is still Super Mario 64. In many ways, because of that, this is the game that I sort of associate most strongly with the very essence of what gaming is. This simple but deep set of controls, deceptively large and complicated world to explore, and a a truly endless amount of fun you can have with it. You know, gaming is supposed to be fun, right? And Mario 64 is sort of just like the world's greatest toy. Certainly as a kid, getting this was like getting, you know, I was like, I'm never playing with a real toy again. I want to play video games. These are great. Um, You know, I think Nintendo has arguably made better Mario games than this one in the years since. And I do want to call out some of the other ones because this is also standing in for Mario, right? Uh, I think you could argue Galaxy 1 and 2 are pretty much the unassailable peak of 3D platforming creativity and perfection. I don't think they're ever really going to get more interesting than that. I think Mario 3D Land on the 3DS is just an ingenious spin on how space is negotiated. Not just in 3D platformers, but in any kind of 3D game. And then, of course, last year's Mario Odyssey is a perfect... A celebration of the series' entire multifaceted history. It's a little bit of everything Mario has ever done under one roof. And that's just 3D games, because you also have the original one on NES, and you have Mario 3, and you have Mario World, and those are all gorgeous and fun and inventive. Um, and I don't know if I were playing all of these games for the first time today. Like, I was new to Mario, I'm playing the whole series... I don't know if Mario 64 would be what I call the best Mario game. There's literally no way for me to know that. That is a counterfactual that is impossible for me to imagine. But I do know this. Every time I thought about swapping Mario 64 out with a different Mario title for this list, 
and there are plenty of great choices again, it just never felt quite right to me personally and to my life and experience as a gamer. Nor did putting any other game at number two feel as honest, because I swapped out a bunch of other ones. I'm like, could Smash Bros. go here? Could Mario Metroid Prime go here? Could Halo go? Whatever. Like, what could be my number? Because my number one, I'll say, was super fucking easy. Okay, but yeah. my number two was like, what's going to go here? But every time I put Mario 64 in that spot, it just felt right. This game is, as much as any other game, it's just a part of me. It is inescapably a part of me. I can't get away from it. I have played it so many times. I don't know if this is the game I've beat the most on this list, because sometimes I just play Mario 64 to play it, and I don't yeah. go all the way through to the end and beat Bowser. Um, uh, and I've played Halo 1, obviously, a lot of times, and that's a shorter game than Mario 64. But I have played Mario 64 a lot in my life, both the original N64 version, which I played a lot on the N64, and in hotel rooms, because when you would go to the hotel with your parents on a trip, and they would have the N64 controller on top of the TV, and you could order a game, I would order Mario 64, go play Bomb on Battlefield, because it's cool, but I would play that, and then when the Nintendo DS came out, I got Super Mario 64 DS, which is a key part of why I love this game so much. Uh, Mario 64 DS kind of gets shit on today. And there are problems with it. It does control awkwardly. It is a little weird to play Mario 3D game with a D-pad. Yeah. That's ameliorated a little bit by the circle pad on the 3DS, which you can just use instead of the D-pad. Mm. Um, but it is still locked to the four directions, obviously. Um, and actually, I was playing... I, I started a fresh file on Mario 64 DS and got like 20 stars the other day just to kind of like refresh my memory on it. And I actually think it's easier to play with the D-pad than the circle pad just because that's what it was made for. And it feels like you can't lock in the directions as easily on the circle pad. So that's an awkward part of it. But I do love Mario 64 DS. It added a lot to the already sizable magic of the game. It crammed even more secrets into those environments. It created puzzles based around having the four characters, Yoshi, Mario, Luigi, Wario. It made every nook and cranny of the castle feel more alive. It's got really nice graphics. You know, it brought in some of the more modern Mario models, which is nice to have an alternate version like that. I do think it would be worth Nintendo one day revisiting that version and making like a nice proper HD version like for Switch or something that could just be played as a normal game. But the original Mario 64 for the Nintendo 64 is still perfect just the way it is. It controls unbelievably well for a game of its vintage. I still think one of the most amazing things that has ever happened in gaming history is how smoothly Mario made the jump to 3D. Yeah. Because we've talked about some of the other jump to 3D games today. Uh, Ocarina of Time, obviously. Yep. Metroid Prime. Yep. Both of those, I'm sure, were very difficult to make, but Ocarina of Time at least gets to borrow that basic structure from Link to the Past, and it doesn't have to reinvent the wheel on that level. There's a lot of other reinventions it has to do. You know, Metroid Prime, sort of similar to Super Metroid, it, the basic structure of what a Metroid game is exists. They just have to adapt it to three dimensions. You couldn't do that with Mario, because Mario was this side-scrolling thing that you ran across and got from beginning to end, and you can't really do that in 3D. Eventually they would do the new Super Mario Bros. games. But those are, while they're 3D modeled, those are 2D games, yeah. right? Yeah. So Mario, it's really like, okay, we got to start fresh on this thing. And Mario 64 comes out day one with the N64 and its horrible controller. And it's just amazing. And it just works. And it just completely reinvents all these very fundamental things about video games. I mean, it fucking on some level invents the camera that we still use. And it has it not perfect. The camera can be awkward in that game. But especially if you, you know, recognize what you're playing and when you're playing it. 
Like, it's amazing how well all the basic things in Mario work in that game. To the extent that until Mario Odyssey, swimming in a Mario game was never as good as it was in Mario 64. They finally got back to that level with Mario Odyssey, and I was very happy to see that. Because Mario Odyssey has full water levels, and it would be bad if the swimming were awkward. But it's good in that game. But, like, through Sunshine and uh, Mario Galaxy and all those, Mario 3D Land, the swimming was never as good as it was in Mario 64. But then, of course, the basic construct of Mario 64, of you have the castle, it just drops you into that world, you're alone, you're Mario, there's a couple little text boxes you can go read, but not a lot, and it's just, go, have fun, and you will find paintings, and there will be objectives in those paintings, and these paintings are these little, you know, concentrated levels and open worlds within themselves, and you have objectives that you go do there, and it has, you know, you go in, and it's the start, and it says something like, you know, um... Big bomb bomb on top of the hill or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And it gives you this one little indication, just enough that you're not going to be lost, but enough that you have to go explore and think about it and solve something and find something. There is such a quiet, subtle brilliance to that that has not abated. Even though, you know, all these years later, I have played Mario 64 many times. Most of the objectives, I know what to do by memory. Some of that, you know, magic of discovery is gone but it's still so fun to play. And of course I have all the memories of discovering that kind of stuff over and over again on the N64 and on the DS version. And just discovering and getting to know each of those levels, which are all so wonderful. Some of them I like more than others, less than others, but I have fond memories of every single one of them. And Mario 64 is just a joy to play. It always has been, it still is. We did not finish our Let's Play of Mario no. 64. But if people want to see how how good you are and how much fun you have playing Super Mario 64, we have several hours of footage of it on the internet. We do. It's uh, one of the most embarrassing things I've ever put uh, of myself on the internet. It's very it didn't good. Go well. It turned out, Sean, I was not good at playing Mario 64 and talking at the same time. That was no. the problem. I, I'm, I swear to you I am better at Mario 64 than that Let's Play can attest to. But we well, do. I mean, I definitely remember there were a couple of times where you're like, oh, let's just stop recording the audio and let me just focus on finishing it. And you definitely just finished it immediately when you did oh, that. Yeah, exactly. You, we can attest to that. Um, no, but other than that, that Let's Play was still good, though, to go get to talk about it a little oh, yeah. more. And I do wish we could have finished that at some point. But it, the game... It is like a Halo Combat Evolved or a Metroid Prime or something that is on the older side of the games we're talking about on this list of that I have a lifetime of memories with it and it really was the launching pad for me into all the other Mario... This and the original NES Mario Bros because weirdly that came out at the time I got a Game Boy Color. So like right, yeah. this and Mario 64 were my two entrees into Mario and I love them both to death. But Mario 64 is... I am just still astonished by how I can always come back to it. I'm astonished at how much casual magic there is to this game of just the specific weird isolated tone of you being Mario alone in this castle and there's weird things to discover and there's kind of surprises around every corner like you know jumping into the volcano in the lava land for the first time or smashing on that pillar and like draining the lake the moat around the castle for the first time or the second time or the third because it's always kind of a crazy thing to see happen and or discovering the wing cap for the first time in that weird level where you have to jump in and like do all the stuff I just think there really is no other game quite like it. A lot of people tried to, I think, force some kind of hackneyed takes on the Mario Odyssey of like, this is finally Mario 64 2, and it's not. I love Mario Odyssey, but that's not really what it is. It takes some things from that, but it really is its own thing. Mario 64 is kind of 
irreplaceable. Like, because the one time they have directly tried to recreate it is Mario Sunshine. And I know some of you love Mario Sunshine, and I respect you, and that's fine. It's not a good game. No. It's not. It's it's a bad game. It's yeah. hard to play. It does not control well. It's awkward. It's repetitive. But it kind of shows if you that, like... you really love collecting eight red coins, Super Mario Sunshine is the, level, the game for you, because they have, like, a hundred of those levels. They do. They're really tough to complete, because Mario just goes off on his own, mm-hmm. because the controls don't work. But yes, I, I think there's a specific magic to Mario 64... That was sort of impossible to recapture, but was so special in the moment. Continues to be so special. It's a great game. It's a it's a simple game in some ways. This is not one where I have a ton to say about thematic complexity the way you yeah. do with like The Witcher Three or something. But I still feel completely justified in putting this as my number two because again, when I think of what a game is, one of the first things that will always come to mind is Super Mario sixty four. It is part of my canon. It's part of my life. It's a him. It's a Mario. Okay, I, I like that. I, I like that ending. I didn't. I didn't know how to wrap it up. Was that okay? I I like it. Yes. Okay. It sounds. It, that sounds like it'd be the last line at the end of like a solemn documentary, like post mortem made after Mario passed away. It's like it's shown at like the Academy Award of video games. It's like uh, when they do the the Logan equivalent for Mario, where yeah. Mario is like taking like a young princess across a, a journey across the Mushroom Kingdom, and he dies at the end, and then they're burying him, and the little girl goes, "It was a him. It was." Mario. Yes. Yeah. And then his hat is on like the cross and it yeah. spins. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do you like Mario 64? Mario 64 is a great fucking game. Yeah. Some might say, I might say, I do say it's the best Mario game. Yes. So I'm glad we got to talk about both this and Ocarina of Time. Yes. The N64, not a great console, didn't have a ton of great games. Had a terrible controller, but it did have two of the most important yeah, video games it ever made. It did have a ton of great games, but like the good games it did have were really fucking good. Yes, not just these two either. You know, yeah. like a Paper Mario or Super Smash Brothers. Super Smash Brothers. Like yep. pseudo. I like how earlier you said like, "Oh, I have a different console for every single entry." And you're like, and then see all of Super Smash Brothers. Well, that one covers Wii U, which I hadn't mentioned yet. <laughs> no, fuck that. That doesn't count. It doesn't count. I can go over my logic when we're done if you want. Okay, we'll, right. we'll, we'll revisit that. What's your number two? Because I'm curious. Two. I think I have an idea, but I don't this know if you're is, actually going to go there. It's the moment of truth, right? It's, yeah. we, we now all know. I'm not going to make you say it yet, but we all know what your number one is. There's no Maybe. question. There's no question what your number one is. Um, but the, So mine is still, you know, a blank. some two blank slots up here. And I do want to just for a second revisit a moment we had on a recent podcast where we talked about the Star Wars movies. At the end of that, when we talked about Return of the Jedi, we made it, we ranked those. And we ranked the Star Wars movies. And at the end of that, we said, fuck it, let's burn it to the ground. I had a similar feeling making this list. My number two game is Persona 3 Fess. Ain't no truth. You're the only one, one world, one world, but the battle goes 
zone, shadow zone, mass destruction. What? Burn into the ground, Jonathan. If you're number there's one, a is new, what? there's a new king on top, motherfucker. I can't accept this. It's I'm exactly leaving. what you think it is. No, Sean, you can't. Come yes. on. Yes. Number two is Persona Three Fess. And it's very specifically, it is important to, to point out Fest because it is the yes. version of Persona 3 to play. Um, so yeah, this is this was a hard choice, but it was a choice that needed to be made. Um, and Persona 3 is, I mean, for fuck's sake, like how long is the Persona 3 podcast we did, Jonathan? Like five hours or something? It's not that long. Persona 4 had a longer one, actually, but it's at least three hours. Yes. So we, we have, we have, and that's just the first... The first time we talked about it, yes, um, we've talked about it many, many times. Uh, it was, it was sadly not on my last list, or no, it, no, it wasn't on your list last time. It was my number one game the last time we did this list. Um, and and you know, it would be very easy for me to say that this is my number one game in a lot of ways. But when I did what, like when I put the list together and I had those two games, we'll talk about number one later. And had them next to each other, and I was like, I'm just going to put one on top of the other, and put the other one on top of the other, and just see how in my gut I feel. And this is how I feel at this moment in time. The number, well, uh, we'll have to wait until you talk about what your number one game is before I say what I'm about to say. But anyway, so Persona 3 Fest, just talk a little bit about it, because I don't want to go super in-depth, because we have gone so in-depth with this game. Um, the first award I'm giving it is... Um, as much a philosophical dissertation as a video game award for most comprehensive thematic exploration. So Persona 3 Fest, for somehow, if you've listened to this podcast, I have no idea what it is. It is about death as as a thematic concept. And like with Persona 4, which is about self as a thematic concept, like with Persona 5, which is... Persona 5 is a little bit more complicated, but it's basically like your role in society and like social responsibility as a thematic concept and being an outcast as a thematic concept. What the Persona team does with these games is taking these specific concepts and kind of like taught, like, you know, logline themes of death or mortality with Persona 3 and making and constructing this whole game to tackle and understand like this very heady, complex philosophical element and concept. And Persona 3 is so unbelievably accomplished at doing that. And at times it feels like it is basically this philosophical dissertation with like this like whole like like graphics layer of a video game on top of it that if you could like peel it away underneath it is like a 500 page book about the concept of death right um and it is when we we talked about the last of us and we've addressed it a couple of times of the concept of games being a holistic experience that is the element about persona 3 fest that makes it the one of the persona games that had to be on the list because obviously like with a couple of other ones like halo or mass effect these Persona Three is standing here for a, like a shoulder to shoulder with Persona Four, Persona Five, and for me the Persona Twos are also kind of in that category. Um, they're not quite as good. The Persona Twos wouldn't get the year this high on their own, but they are in that conversation in that that community for me. Revelations Persona, the original one, not really. That was that was an interesting curiosity. It's not that good. Um, but yeah, but Persona Three Fest with it, with its you know brothers and sisters in the Persona community. Um, has this one unique quality of it being a rough fucking video game. Like, in terms of its design, it is not, you know, like, sanded down in any way. It was this team's first go at a game like this. It was their first time making social links. It was their first time doing, like, this version of the combat system. It was this time, first time doing, like, this version of dungeons and of, like, the, you know, Persona 1 and Persona 2 did not have the calendar concept. This is the first time the series had a calendar concept and this team did it. And so it approached all those things with such fresh eyes 
that feels like to me Persona 4, Persona 5 as amazing and some of the best games ever made are have some of like the rawness sanded down that Persona 3 just fucking goes for it and it is to me the the thing like the thing in Persona 3 that makes it like the design choice the singular design decision that makes it one of the best games ever made and, and the best Persona game I think for me is you can't control your teammates in a battle you can't control them in battle. You can't just put fucking equipment on them magically. If you want to do something with a teammate, you have to go fucking talk to them and get them to do it. Because they are separate, different people from you. And that's such a strange concept. It's so foreign to a video game. You know, this is like bucking like decades-long trends since like Final Fantasy 1 and Dragon Quest 2 of controlling all of your party members directly. Like, it's, it's, it goes through the very roots of the JRPG genre. Since they put in multiple party members, you've been able to fucking control them directly. And Persona 3 said, fuck that. No. Why? Why? Like, you, why does that have to be the case? Why do you have to be able to control them? What happens if you say no? Like, you can, you can obviously give them suggestions and give them these sort of, like, AI orders that will get them to act in specific ways. And you can kind of control the battles the way you want. But you do not get to take direct control of them. And to me, it has such a mind-blowing, like, it's a small choice that has such a mind-blowing effect to the whole game. That, that, that reaches out to every single facet of the game and gives it um, the, my second award. Did they trap real people in here award for best cast of characters? Because the cast of characters in Persona 3 feel to me like living actual people. They are people that have their own interests. They have their own group of friends, their own social circles, their own things that they're pursuing, their own clubs, their own like all of that. And they are pulled together through the, the events of the main story of them having to be a part of this Team C's and tackling the, show, the, the weird shadow phenomena and TARDIS that is happening in the midnight hour and figuring all that out. And they've all been touched by trauma related to that in different ways. But outside of that, like, sort of core group activity and them being at the dorm together, like, Yukari has her whole, like, weird archery shit that she's doing that you're never a part of. Like, she's just, like, going off and doing it, and you never are a part of that element of her life, even when you do her whole social link. You never quite get that deeply involved into it. And it's so different than almost any other game, particularly any other JRPG and the other Persona games, where it's like, no, like, we are this super group of mega friends that everything, we know everything about everybody, and if we don't know something about somebody, that is going to end up being a plot twist where we find that out about you, and it's going to be a big reveal. And, and that's a legitimate design choice. It's a legitimate storytelling choice. It's how not just video games, but most stories are written is like there's, there, if there is something that you don't know about somebody or something like element of their life you don't touch, it's usually because either it doesn't exist or it's something that is going to have to be revealed later in the story and you do get involved with. And Persona 3 just isn't concerned with that. Persona 3 is concerned with constructing them as separate, unique, interesting individual people, not as cogs in a team, which is how most of these games feel like. And and that core design decision, which they took away in Persona 3 Portable, is is so key to Persona 3 Fest and to how remarkable it is as a video game very specifically is it has, you know, if you, you can get the story from watching the movies and it's, and those movies are phenomenal and the story is great that way, but playing it as a game and having to occupy the shoes of the main character and have these very interesting, strange relationships with this cast of characters is what makes Persona 3 as remarkable a game as it is. It's what sets it apart from its peers and what sets it apart from other mediums is you have such an in-depth, incredible connection to the main character and to that cast that is unlike any experience I've had with characters in any other medium, in any other piece of fiction. 
And, and there's such a deep richness to that. And then using that dynamic to then explore that core theme of death and of mortality from the perspective of these traumatized teenagers is so compelling and, and, and really forced me. And I know it forced you. And we talked about it a lot on that Persona 3 podcast to like reapproach the issue of death and mortality in our own lives and our own experiences and, and people in our lives that, that we know that have passed away that have affected us. Um, and all that culminating in, in the final moments of Persona 3 on that rooftop is one of the most beautiful moments in the game I've ever seen. It's something that will stick with me forever. It, 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 it's, it's a just utterly remarkable like landmark achievement in storytelling to me that is in Persona 3 Fest that we have again, talked about to death and talked about in depth about the gameplay design and how that works and the, more of the specific storytelling moments. And, and obviously the fucking music is just amazing in Kimi no Kiyoku. The, the end credits theme is, is just gorgeous and, and beautiful and heartbreaking. And so much of this game is made to just the like utter levels of perfection. And then it has just the nice raw edges on top to give it this sort of edge and, and, and rawness to it that makes it feel fresh and dangerous and compelling and interesting. The last thing I need to say about Persona 3 Fest is over the past couple of years, I've had the privilege for multiple games of being able to give them a specific award um, that, that, that I love and adore. And we've been given the permission to do this. And so this time out, it's a bit late coming, but a new award in that line has been made. And this is the inaugural um, addressing of it. Persona 3 Fest, I'm very proud to say, wins the Miyuki Swashiro Lifetime Achievement Award for Peculiar Excellence. To be able to get this award, the game must um, clear three different categories. It must be peculiar. It must be excellent in its peculiarity, and it must, of course, feature the the great, amazing, beautiful voice actress Miyuki Swashiro in a prominent role. And Elizabeth, the the Velvet Room attendant in Persona 3 Fest, obviously the Japanese version, is voiced by Miyuki Swashiro. And she gives the most peculiarly excellent performance in the history of performances. It is amazing. It is incredible. And, and, and so it is a cut above all the rest. And, and I think very soundly deserves being given the Lifetime Achievement Award. All right. I have... Wait, there's one other thing I have to say because I wanted that joke to land on Persona 3. I now have to go back one step and give The Witcher 3 another special award. The Witcher 3 gets... This is another first time. The Miki Swashiro Award for Peculiar Excellence in Japanese Language Dubbing because... I have spent hours of my life watching the Japanese version of Witcher 3 in Let's Plays on YouTube, and she is the Japanese voice of Siri. Wow. That's and pretty cool. And it's really good, and it's really weird, and people should watch it because it's fucking crazy. Muki Swatcher is amazing. Persona 3 is amazing. Well, you stole my lunch on this one a little bit, Sean, because of how you check out your weird-ass list. <sighs> but my number one favorite game of all time is definitively Persona 3. Specifically Persona 3 Fest. Yeah. Um, there are multiple versions. There's Vanilla Persona 3. There's Fest, which is the one where they added the iGIS social link and a bunch of other important things. And that's the one you want to play. And there's Portable, which makes a lot of mistakes. But if you, this is the only way you can play Persona 3. You should still play Persona 3. But yes, Persona 3 Fest is my favorite game. This was when I went to make this list. I, I opened a blank page and I put number one, Persona 3. 
And then I figured out everything else. This it's was, important to note you have not had a top 10 game list that had Persona 3 at the top because the last time we did this you hadn't played it yet. I had not. And basically I've wanted to redo this list ever since finishing Persona 3 because while I have told you guys it's my favorite game before, I just want to shout it from the rooftops. Persona 3 is my favorite game. This is easier than in any other medium for me. Like if you're asking me my favorite book, my favorite album, my favorite movie, any of those... I could come up with some, and I can feel relatively okay, but, like, it's a it's a little harder. It is very, very easy for me with video games. I have zero hesitation on this one. Persona 3 is my favorite game. When I say you stole my lunch on this, because you said a lot of the things I would yeah. say about it. But, you know, it really is... Uh, I boot up this game, and I look at the colors, all those fucking blues and greens that are creepy and raw... And the character designs, which are, you know, anime and outlandish in some ways, but also so human and so much goes into every inch of them. When I hear the voices in English or in the movies in Japanese or in the Japanese version of the game, they just connect with me on such a raw, primal level. When I play the combat, which is so good, and as you very correctly noted, for Persona 3 specifically, has to be you separate from the three other people. Because that is what makes the combat and the game itself so special in so many ways. And I see any piece of the story, or I hear any piece of music, because this is just one of the most perfect, amazing, weird-ass video game soundtracks that has ever existed or will ever exist. And I love it so, so much. I just know, in every inch of every one of those things, Persona 3 simply means more to me than any other video game. You had the game over there on your shelf, the original PS2 copy of it. Which I don't know, because I have this digitally on PS3. Yes, I, so I'm, I, I been, bought the actual game to play it in an emulator on my PC. That is <laughs> so good. That is a moral time. way to do it, yeah. Sean. But I am flipping through the manual. One, video game manuals need to make a comeback, because they're fucking great. Yep. Two, I'm just looking at, again, the text and the colors and the character designs in this manual. And I just, I feel something I have never felt with any other game. And even with the other two Personas, because 4 and 5 very much get to take an honorary spot alongside yeah. number one with this for me, and I love and treasure those games deeply. Yeah, if but, we gave the, the different Persona games entries on this list, it would be a very crowded top five. It would be. But I still, Persona 3, it's not hard for me to say that is my favorite. You know, one of the things you said really resonated with me, which is that it feels dangerous, and it really yeah. does. Like, it feels like they're going off half-cocked making a video game, yeah. right? Like, we have some ideas... And they're crazy, and we're going to put them all together, and somehow it just works. And yes, this is a game that is proudly imperfect. There are absolutely design decisions in here that you can question and talk about, and like, do you need the fatigue system and things like this? And no, it's not all ironed out and polished to perfection. That's Persona 5. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It's amazing, in fact. Persona 5 is an utterly insane achievement. But I also love that Persona 3 feels raw and dangerous and in some ways improvised and held together with duct tape and prayer at some moments because that's part of the magic of it. Because what it has at its core that animates everything else is the thing any story, any piece of music, any work of art needs, which is a theme. And it has a strong sense of that theme and has a strong sense of itself in relation to that theme. And that is like... The core of the planet and everything else emanates outward from that. Why is the color scheme the way it is? Because of that theme. Why does the main character have blue hair? Because of that theme. Why does the music sound the way it is? 
Some of it's because that theme. Some of it's because Shoji Meguro is fucking crazy, right? Yeah. But, like, all of it comes out of that. And it is one of the most amazing achievements in terms of, I think, that thematic centrality that I've ever seen. And that theme, of course, is death. And it is about dying. It is about the act of dying. And it is about the act of being left behind. It is about the existential crisis that comes from realizing one's own mortality. It comes from, or it is about death in all of these different ways. And I said this back in 2013, or I think it was 2013 when we did our big Persona 3 yeah. podcast. Um, this game asks the biggest questions a human being can reasonably ask and get any kind of answer or closure to. You know, you can, you can ask something bigger like, why are we here? And then you can go fuck yourself with that yeah. because we don't, like, you're here. Deal yeah. with it. Like, let's ask a real question now. And these are questions worth asking and worth exploring, but that most works of fiction are never going to come as close to grasping as Persona 3 does. Not just in its incredible ending, which is one of the single greatest things ever committed in the name of art, but throughout itself. And there's a tonal variety to this game that I hope people understand is there. Because Persona 3, when we say it's about death, that sounds like it's very dark. And it is a dark game. It's also a hilarious game. Oh, yeah. It's a funny game. It is a fun game. It is fun to just play. We have talked about all the mechanics that go into making Persona Persona so many times that I don't think I need to repeat them. But yeah. the basics of like the dungeon side of things, the social link side of things, the day-to-day you know, living in this world, it is just one of the most invigorating and properly thematizing game loops in the history of video games. It creates some of the best storytelling in the history of storytelling. But it is a tonally variant game. It has the fun, it has the lighthearted, and it can be funny, and it can be charming, and it can be, um, you know, kind of sorrowful at other times, and it can be very sad and dark and violent at other times, or it can just be lighthearted. It can be all these different things and never stray from that main theme because the idea of Memento Mori, which is, you know, proudly on the, I don't know if it's actually on this box, but it's in lots it's, of it's art. It's in there for, somewhere. It's in there somewhere. Remember You Will Die is, remember you will die, and that's sad. But remember, you will live because that's part of dying. And that if you're living, you can have friends and you can have relationships and you can be in a world and you can experience that world and the knowledge that it is not a forever thing, that it is something that will run out, that you will run out, that the people around you will run out, makes every inch of that so much more precious. And Persona 3 lives and breathes that idea in every single fiber of its being, in everything it excels at, in every rough edge it has. All of that is there in every cell of this game. And I don't know if there's a more complete work of art I have played in the video game space in terms of conveying an idea and drawing you in on that idea than Persona 3, specifically Persona 3 Fest, which is the most perfect version of the game. I could not love this game anymore if I tried. It could not mean more to me uh, if I tried. Uh, I think the only time I've ever uh, cried during the podcast was talking about Persona 3 on that episode. So that's actually episode number 60. Uh, I remember that because it was um, a significant number. But yes, um, you know, I've told the story of when I finished Persona 3 for the first time. I remember it very vividly. I was sitting at my desk uh, at my old house and that those last scenes played, and as the credits were rolling, I was, like, just sobbing in the corner. I did, no other game has made me do this, just openly, like, weep. And I was working through some shit. This was about a year after my dad died, and I said this at the time. It's still true. In the first year after my dad passed, 
Persona 3 honestly was the most comforting, clarifying, cathartic thing I experienced. And maybe that sounds weird. Oh, it's a video game. But it's true. And it's not a video game. It's art. And yeah. art, video games are art. And art can be video games. And it's all one thing. And art is one of the ways we process the world. That's why it exists. That why, that's why it is important. It is a way we make sense of this weird short thing we have called life. Uh, and Persona 3, I think, contextualizes life in some of the most interesting ways I've ever seen art do. Um, it's not just a masterpiece. It's not just one of the best games of all time. It's something that means an awful lot to me personally. And if you have never played Persona 3, I hope you will. But no, feel free to skip Episode Igus because it's a piece of shit. I like Episode Igus. Episode Igus is great if you want to go enjoy it on YouTube and not play any of it. But it is utter lazy bullshit if you want to just play it because it's just, it's like you have some story at the beginning and then like 40 fucking hours of grinding and then you might get some more story at the end, which I never figured out because I played 20 hours of it and nothing had happened. So I'll just say that. But the rest of Persona 3, I love. So anyway. Apparently I love Persona 3 more than you then because I love Episode I guess also. You only put it at number two, you sinful motherfucker. I will say that for me, Persona 3 is like on its, like, if, if this was a like, podcast list of like this podcast top 10 games Persona 3 is easily number one yes but this is not the podcast list this is my personal list so what and is Sean's number one game my number one it couldn't be anything else my number one game is of course Captain Crunch's Crunchling Adventure on the PC. Um, this is a game I think everybody listening to this podcast knows how deeply personal this game is to me, how much I love it. I hate that I accidentally tweeted that thing out and didn't realize. I thought it was just like a DM to you, Jonathan. I didn't realize I was tweeting it to everybody. Um, but of course, we have to talk about it a little bit. Um, I'm just going to read a paragraph from, this is the Giant Bomb game wiki for uh, Captain Crunch's Crunchling Adventures. This is about like the, the scenario in which, because I think it really illuminates a lot about the game, that Captain Crunch's Crunchling Adventure was created. Um, Captain Crunch's Crunching Adventure was part of Quaker Oats' Where's the Captain promotion in 1999. The game came packaged as, CD, as a CD-ROM with double boxes of Captain Crunch cereal or could be ordered by mail with the purchase of a single box. A press release given by Quaker Oats set the retail value at $30. That's very cheap for something so incredible. The game revealed the location of where the captain had been and continued his adventures there. The CD-ROM could also be played in an audio CD player where Captain Crunch gives a 20-minute narration of the story in the game. Um, you can also, if you just put the CD into your computer, you can just rip all the audio out as WAV files from the game. So I'm now sending you, Jonathan, an email with the, the main theme of the game to put into the podcast. Thanks. Um, now I don't have to go look it up. Yep. And so that's, that's, that's the raw shit. That's straight from the CD. That's straight from the source. You're drinking from the source, motherfucker, on that one. Um, Sean's email, everybody. The the tie, the subject line is "It's Crunch Time." Yep. Um, yeah. So just to sort of run down some of the awards, I give it um, best captain goes to Crunch. Um, the Mario Party distinction for greatest ever mini game goes to the one where you throw giant rocks at pterodactyls. That's one of the three mini games in the game. It is, of course, it's a game. I guess I should describe what Crunch's Crunch and the Adventure is. It's a game where you play as a. Well, I guess you don't. You kind of play as a third party observer because Captain Crunch does talk to you in his dulcet, 
sonorous, beautiful tone of, Hey, what's up, guys? It's me, Captain Crunch. Here for Crunchling Adventure. And he does all that shit. And he's kind of talking to you. And you have a little Crunchling. You can pick one of three Crunchlings and kind of um, customize them a little bit with different colors. And you feed them Crunch, uh, Captain Crunch cereal, um, which leads me to my third award. Um, the Crunchling approved award for best Captain Crunch cereal goes to Captain Crunch Crunch Berries. It's the best. It's better than normal Captain Crunches for suckers. Peanut butter Captain Crunch just feels they taste bad. Crunch berries is where you want to go for that. What shit. do you feel about Oops All Berries? Um, I'm personally not a big fan. I need a variety of, of the texture, but you can use it to make very funny jokes. Um, and and yeah, so you kind of grow your Crunchling and feed them Crunch Cap and Crunch cereal to make them bigger. And you could do do one of three different mini games types. There's one where you're like on a skateboard. There's one where you're kind of like jumping around. And there's the best one is when you're throwing giant rocks at pterodactyls. And eventually you um, get big enough to then challenge the Crunchium thieves because the whole plot is that there are these thieves that have stolen Crunchium, which is the magic mineral mineral that makes Captain Crunch taste good, I guess. And Captain Crunch has been fighting them, and they have, like, enslaved the Crunchlings, I think, and are forcing the Crunchlings to mine Crunchium, if I remember correctly. It has been, understandably, a very, very long time since I played this video game. Um, And and yet it's your number one. And yet it's my number one, because it's it's lived deep in my heart. I I did not in any way suddenly remember that this game existed about a week ago when I was cleaning up the basement and moving a bunch of shit and found a big pile of old PC games, and this was in there, like, oh, shit, this existed. That didn't happen at all. Okay. Should I do my actual number one now? What? what? You have an action? That wasn't your actual number one? No. Captain Crunch's Crunchling could, Adventure. Could this be a meta commentary akin to what I think your last game is, Sean? I don't know what you're referring to, Jonathan. All I know is if you re- reverse the conversation back to this being a very personal list and, and, and it must be the most personal of all lists, there's only one game that could have been my number one even though I did try for Persona 3 I'm like I have to see it in this like but it just didn't work it just didn't work for me because playing this game made me an insane person my number one game is Nier Automata want to talk about recency bias burn it down motherfucker i was about to say burn it down you did not care about recency bias i played this game through twice that that was enough for me of like i feel like i did my due diligence for this game and i I loaded it up again just like to run around and then and i listened to the soundtrack a lot and got a lot of emotions from it like i need to put this game at number one can i give this game an award okay yes before you give it your awards yeah can i give near automata my i don't get it award Yes, yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so Nier Automata gets my I Don't Get It award. This goes to a game that I respect immensely, that I truly did enjoy once I got into it 20 hours into the fucking game when I played it last year, and that I think the parts I really liked of it are incredibly impressive, and it's really great. But, and it's not just you. It's no, er- it's, it's a lot of people. This is akin to religion, where like, I can go to church and like it's it's like I think the songs in Christianity are really nice and I've read some of the Bible and it's really the book of Job is one of the coolest things I've ever read but I'm not a Christian and I don't yeah. call myself that I don't go to church every Sunday it's kind of like that with Nier Automata oh, where I like, go to the church in Nier Automata for fun where it's like sure. I think the music's really good I think it's reasonably fun to play I like the characters there's the part with the fucking robot who dies that's incredibly sad and the ending is really cool 
but I don't like then go worship at its altar. People who like Nier Automata like it to a religious cult-like level. It kind of freaks me out. I think it's kind of cool. This is this award is not me putting down the game, I want to be clear. Yeah, yeah. This is the, I don't quite understand you, but clearly other people do. So Nier Automata, you get Jonathan's I Don't Get It Award, uh, Lifetime Achievement. Yes. My, so I will then give it one of my awards, which is, and I think this, this is the most true award for this game, I think connects to yours a little bit, is that it's the best game for pessimistic, depressive weirdos <laughs> award. That's what, because it is, there is a like very clear connective tissue I've seen in my experience of people who really love this game, and for, that it's, it's, we're all like that. We're all weird, pessimistic, depressive weirdos. Like, we're, we, like, have very cynical outputs where they're prone to bouts of depression and just like this game is in my fucking skull, Jonathan. Like it's just in there. It's a part of me now. It's 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 absurd. I'm so sad that the Xbox version of this already came out, so they couldn't on the Game of the Year Xbox edition put on the box Pessimistic <laughs> Depressive Weirdos edition. Yes. <laughs> because you're so right. Yeah. The other people I know who love this game like you love this game. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it is just, it fucking, it's, I don't I feel like a, like a 16 year old thing, but it's like, it gets me, man. It's like, it, it really does. There's something, and it's why it feels like my relationship to Nier Automata feels like really personal to me in a way that feels, like you said, weird. Like almost weirdly religious in a way that like Persona 3 Fest gets to be this fun thing that we share on this podcast. The world shares. Netflix loves it, you know, Persona 3, the movie number two, Midsummer Night's Dream, still on Netflix. Um, it's like everybody, you know, gets to be here and love Persona 3, and, and lots of people love Nier Automata, but we all love Nier Automata, like, clutching it to our chests and, like, being weird about it, because it is this game that feels, like, it gets under your skin, and it feels so deeply, strangely personal, and we, I, you know, I ranted and raved about this game a lot. Last year. We have at least one podcast of you doing it solo. We have (laughs) one where we talk about it at length together. And we have the top ten games of the year. So take your pick. There are... Yes. If you want to hear Sean talk about Nier Automata, there's probably like five hours of material to cut together. Yeah, because there's also a couple of like smaller discussions while I was playing it in the early phases. Yes. Um, But for me, it is like... It's... I mean, I, I, you know, I, I recognize it and, and definitely like sympathize with the criticisms that you and other people have of the experience of playing the game and it like taking a long time for it to form um, for people. And for me, and again, it's like the same thing for like the people who really love it. And like the, the person that I'm most connected to with this is Alex Navarro at Giant Bomb and listening to their podcast discussions because he is very much, you know, a pessimistic, depressive weirdo like me and like had this incredible, like carried this incredible torch for that game and that website. And it it is like this very strange thing of where I think if you read his thing that he wrote for their game of the year stuff, where it was his favorite game of 2017, it is just this like, I recognize that other people have those problems. I agree that this game probably does have those problems. But for me, it's like, I didn't experience it that way. Like I didn't feel that. Like for me, it is... Like I said, like I, I don't think I can d- say anything more like direct about this game than what I did at the end of Game of the Year last year, which is the flaws of this game make this game what it is in such a way that it cannot be different to me. It has to be what it is because it is. it feels so strange and fully formed and exists as this bizarre creation that is so unique, so utterly singular. I've never experienced anything 
approximating what Nier Automata does in, in a billion different ways. That like it is, it's kind of like like also with Persona Three, like it is a edgy, strange, raw, dangerous fucking game that feels like you talk about it. It feels like it's like put together with like like sticks and glue or something. It's like that's that's fucking your automata. It feels like a, a couple of dark wizards went down into a laboratory and did some spells and experiments and mixed some potions that they absolutely should not have mixed. Yeah, but we get to enjoy it. Yeah. They probably blew themselves up in the process. Oh, absolutely. There's some sort of blood sacrifice was involved in the creation of There's the game. There's a reason Yoko Taro wears that fucking mask. Exactly, yes. But yeah, Nier Automata is one of our... I also, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I opened up a document on my PC in our podcast file that just says Nier and Tragedy on it. That was my notes for when we talked about it. Um, I think it was like that was our, like, talking about it together podcast. But it's just like... It just says, like... Crowd versus solitary. Breaking the fourth wall is tradition in theater versus films and how games are closer to live theater. Um, the hammer Tia. Fucking just like the act of recognition. And then I just have a bunch of fucking Japanese text on here that I think is quotes from the Japanese version of the game and different quotes from the games. And it's like, you know, I usually don't take... I'm like, I as a person do not almost ever take notes. Like, I am a notes... I live a notes-free life. I have, I have, That's just my personality. It's how I've always done things. It's like I have different ways of, of doing that than other people. I think people should generally take notes. It's just I've, I've evolved in such a way that's like... I've walked a different path. Not to say I'm better than taking notes. I've, like, my version of taking notes is taking two-hour-long walks at night and listening to music and just, like, going insane in my head. Um, and, but Nier Automata is one of those, like, I, if, if I let it all go insane in my head, it's too much for me, and I have to just, like, ramble on, on, on paper for a while, and so I have, like, five fucking pages of just, like, utter fucking just rambling nonsense of, about Nier Automata, and it is, I guess, like, for me, with Nier Automata, it's a kind of a different thing than Persona 3, where Persona 3 is this, you know, and, and the other Persona games, are these like deep explorations of this like one singular theme and has this incredible sense of focus. Um, whereas Nier Automata has, and this is, I have to again credit, um, Giant Bomb this time, Jeff Gerstmann with this, because he, he, um, phrased this stuff in a way I really love. So I'm just gonna read a section from his, Jeff Gerstmann's top 10 from 2017, where he says, um, I will say that when all is said and done, Nier Automata is a very touching game. It feels personal in a way that games published by large publishers usually don't. This is the, the line I love that just like kind of opened up something about this game for me when I read this. This was from after we talked about the game before. Um, it feels like a nearly complete thought on the subject of humanity. And that, that like struck me really hard of like that is so, that is very much what this game feels to me. Like it's not just like a complete thought on a theme or a set of themes. It feels like a nearly complete thought on the subject of humanity as a whole. And there's something bizarrely comprehensive something like complete and unique about Nier Automata in that regard that it is not easy for me to break it down into little tiny chunks. It is something that exists as this indelible whole. And it, and like I said on the Game of the Year last year, it, the things in my experience that are closest like that are to me like the greatest pieces of literature I've ever read of like the Odyssey or the Canterbury Tales or King Lear or, or Ulysses and like the, the, the works of literature that have struck me the hardest and informed me the most in like my academic side of life. Nier Automata exists in my head in the same sphere and bubble as all those. Um, it is so strangely, bizarrely, beautifully theatrical in nature in a way that then when I later learned that, you know, Yogotaro wrote fucking stage play 
plays in the near universe is like, yeah, that makes sense because this comes from the strange tradition of theater and, and this communication between the player or the audience and the performers that, that should be so often like something we understand and experience in games, but I feel like is so generally obfuscated, feels very clear and direct to me in Nier Automata. But of course, for Nier Automata, where it all really comes together, the thing that puts it over the edge to make it, you know, my favorite game is all the stuff in the ending. It is that, that final credits sequence where the ending unfolds for you and, and where it gets um, another one of my awards, the most honorable recognition for giving a brief flicker of hope at the end of the endless pitch black hole we call humanity. <laughs> because that's the thing about Nier Automata is it is, I think, easily like the darkest, most cynical, pessimistic piece of media I've ever engaged with. This is a piece of media where it's not like, it's not apocalyptic. It's not post-apocalyptic. It's not post-post-apocalyptic. It's not post-post-post. It's like we are tens of thousands of years since humanity has gone extinct. We're so far from humanity being a thing that has existed. They are this weird, like, religious force in the background of people, that the, the androids that worship humanity, basically, and, and the, the robots being, you know, utterly, like, intellectually compelled by the idea of humanity. But humanity has been extinct for so fucking long, and that becomes very like, clear in those final, like, that final act of the game of, like, no, like, straight up. Humanity is dead. Any hope of humanity coming back is gone. Like, it's over. And I don't... I can't think of anything else that is that. Of just like, no, it's fucking... It's, we're, we're so past game, the game over screen on humanity, it's not even funny. Like, like humanity w- walked into its own destruction and was over, you know, the basically like the fucking the entire planet's lifetime ago, almost. Um, the closest I could think is something like the original Planet of the Apes. But even then... Um, a human is the main character, technically. Yes, no. There, and the apes are people in, in ape costumes. Yes, and there are no humans in Nier Automata. There is not right. a single human ever makes any appearance in Nier Automata at all. Obviously, the androids are very human-like in appearance and have different human-like qualities in their personalities. But they are not humans. And it's very clear that it's like humanity's fucking just gone. And that's such a harshly dark premise to start from. But, especially, but it doesn't start from that premise. It starts from the premise of humanity's on the moon. And they're, like, sending us down here to, like, fix shit on Earth. And you only find out later that's like, you know, I think most people probably suspect, mm, this moon shit seems kind of sketchy. I don't know if I trust you people. But what it, but it does just get full on confirmed. Like, humanity just doesn't exist. And it's that the process of Nier Automata is taking, like, step after step after step into, like, these very dark kind of philosophical, you know, very existential um, realizations about the nature of life, the nature of humanity, the nature of, like, us being... Like cling to the skin of this fucking giant spinning rock in space and our own, you know, horrifying insignificance and all that and our own, you know, kind of like with Persona 3, our own and, and Last of Us. And, you know, there's maybe a trend on some of the stories of these games, like of, of just our, our fragility and mortality and our liminality in this space that, that we are here for like a brief flash of light and then we are gone. And Nyarotomta walks through the youth, through all those realizations. It doubles down on all that shit in like a grim, like sort of funhouse mirror kind of way because the androids are immortal. Because these robots are immortal and like they have the things that humanity wants to be able to have and, and have that kind of permanence but are stuck in these cycles that humanity was also stuck in and it's more horrifying for them because they never fucking get to leave it. Like they are always stuck in these cycles. And so it's like every step of the game is so fucking dark, so fucking oppressive. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And then once you start getting into, into some of the stuff with 9S and once like, you know, to be 
I'm just going to spoil this game, right? So it's like, and 2B gets killed if you're playing as 9S and, and, and A2 and like going into like the full cycle of tragedy with 9S. And, and in that entire process, you're then like even things like love and sexuality get dualized and like mirrored with violence and death and destruction because for 9S and I think for a lot of people, like love and hate and sex and violence are basically the same thing. And that from a wide enough lens, those like love and hate and sex and violence are indistinguishable things and they look exactly the same and they drive people in the same ways. They obsess people in the same ways. They cause similar acts of destruction that they are indistinguishable. And Nier Automata has a lot of that perspective to it with the relationship between 9S and 2B where he loves 2B, but he also understands in his bones that 2B exists to kill him, to destroy him. And every time he, he gets far enough, she sets him back and, 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 and hurts him again. And so you're just getting so many of these just depressing, dark, fucked up revelations. But what makes Nier Automata so beautiful to me it is is the piece of media in my life that has driven me... I've never like been bawling in the corner like you had with Persona 3. But by far the closest I've ever been is the ending of Nier Automata. But not because anything sad happens, but because after all of that... And me basically like... Shaking my head like, yes, this is all true. This is all, yes, this is this is what it is to be human. Like, this is the foolishness of humanity splayed out before me. Like, all this is 100% true and real. Is that even after all of that, in its final moments, the game gives you this flicker of hope. And it says... And it's like, it's an impossible hope. It's an unreal hope. There's no, like, real sense of, like... It's good to, like, this can be accomplished and that, like, things will be better the next time. It doesn't really tell you that, like, that can't like will happen but still like and it is like that that complete thought on humanity what humanity is is being faced with all those dark revelations about like the meaninglessness of everything um and life and death and all of that and still striving forward because it's the only thing that we can do on this like vague hope that for the next generation maybe it can be better and for them maybe they can make the next generation better even though in the year 2018 that philosophy of life does not look very promising there's still that hope that maybe that can work and that game, Nier Automata, just, it fucking does that. And it shows that to you. Not as a, like, not with the characters, not with, like, you know, like, like dialogue. It doesn't do Metal Gear Solid 2, I'm just gonna rant at you for fucking 30 minutes. It shows it to you through the movement and action of the plot and, and the, the construction and assumptions you make about genre and video games and mediums. And in those final moments at the end of ending E and you are in like the, the, you know, the ending credits and have the full revelation of other people can join me. Other people are helping me on this quest and we are all in this together. Like, you know, holding hands, singing Kumbaya. I mean, literally the, you know, the ending credits music swells with, with a choral chant of everybody singing along into like the universal language of music and the languages of English and Japanese and their fake weird French, like all dissolve away. And we are like unified in this pursuit to try to find something better. It just brings you there through the natural movements and physical storytelling of the plot in a way that is so elegant and beautiful that it brought me basically to the verge of utter tears. And that's... I've never seen anything that's ever been even close. Like, even in the ballpark of doing that to me. And it does it also through the malleability of form. Like, yeah. if there's one thing I truly latch onto with Nier Automata, it's that it, like, abides by no single genre or gameplay style or any of that. Like, it is completely malleable to the whims of what they want to do with it at any given moment and that is 
not completely unprecedented in this space, but on the scale near Automata does it, virtually unprecedented, and that it does what you're talking about through a complete malleability of something as simple as a credit sequence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Near Automata is a game that takes nothing for granted. Like it makes no. it, it 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 plays with your assumptions, but it makes no assumptions itself, and, and it tackles everything it does with fresh eyes and a unique take. And of course, on top of that, you have all the stuff of like I I you know the combat's not the deepest thing in the world, but I do love the combat. I love the fucking animation in this game is so gorgeous. The soundtrack is soul crushing in the best ways possible, and that in credit song, that in credit sequence, so much of that comes from the music. I love. All the themes in the game of humanity and will and and love and death and and violence and hate and 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 but in particular, I love the way the game uses language and that's another way that the game feels very tailored for me of being bilingual with English and Japanese and being able to approach it from both of those sides and seeing the way that that game plays with with language in that way. Nier Automata is a game that like. Again, I feel like ever since I played Nier Automata, I lost my mind. Like, I feel like that game broke me in a way that, that I love and, and is so incredibly personal to me that there was when you said, Sean, we need to do this, make a new top 10 list of games. In my heart of hearts, I knew immediately Nier Automata had to be my number one. Awesome. I, re- I always enjoy hearing you talk about yeah. it. Um, this was cool. I'm glad we got to do this. Uh, for reference, by the way, I looked up the numbers of which podcast we talked about our number one games on. Uh, in episode 199 is when you did your first, Jonathan, holy shit, I just finished this game. Yes. That one. That's one of my favorite experiences I've ever had with a video game is just like that night finishing Nier Automata, driving all the way through. I, re- re- I regaled it all that podcast, or one of the podcasts, of just like, I got to that last ending by accident, didn't realize what I was getting into, and had to spend the next five hours buying the, the fucking soundtrack on, on Amazon and listening to it over and over again, just trying to process what the fuck I just did. Yes, so that was episode 199. In episode 203, we did our spoiler cast on it. It's not the whole episode, because we were all talking about Twin Peaks and shit at the right. time. That was a hell of a year. But yes, uh, that's 203, and then in 220 is our top 10 of 2017, where you talked about it at length there as well. Uh, for Persona 3, episode 60 is our main about the game. That's three and a half hours of just the game. And then episodes 87, 107, 134, and 157 are our talks about the four Persona 3 movies, which are also, I have to say, part of the reason that solidified this is my favorite yeah. game, is that you can't make those movies out of something that is not superb. So um, that's all our Persona 3 talk, all the Nier Automata talks, so you should check those out if you want to hear more about these Sean, to finish up, do you want to do a quick recap of our lists? Yes, let's do that. My number 10, Pokemon Crystal version. My number 10 is The Last of Us. My number 9 is Fire Emblem Awakening. My number 9 is Bloodborne. My number 8 is The Last of Us. My number 8 is Hitman 2016. My number 7 is Mass Effect Trilogy. My number 7 is World of Warcraft. My number 6 is Halo Combat Evolved. My number 6 is Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. My number 5 is The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. My number 5 is Halo 3. My number 4 is Metroid Prime. My number 4 is The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. My number 3 is Super Smash Brothers. My number 3 is The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. That would be so great if, like, you went into, like, the the uh, Witcher 3 equivalent of a Hooters and there's yeah. a girl who goes, Are you here on the wild hunt, hunt? Yeah. Yeah. All right. My number two is Super Mario 64. My number two is Persona 3 Fess. My number one is Persona 3 Fess. And my number one is Captain Crunch's Crunchling Adventure. I mean, Nier Automata. We only had two games shared across our lists. Yeah. More than two franchises, but only two games. Yeah. 
No, it's... All right. So, Sean, 250, now 251 episodes. It's been a journey. It's been an adventure. It's been fun. We'll have to figure out what we do for 300 in about a year. But Top 300 stuff. We skipped 200 on that one. 300 things. All right. I found my top 100 stuff the other day when I was going through some computer files. Oh, nice. Yes. I remember your number one pretty vividly. Yes, me too. All right. Uh, so thank you guys. Feel free to tweet us. Tweet at us. Comment at us. Uh, want to hear about your favorite games as well. Which, you know, what you, what you liked on our lists. What you want to yell at us about. You guys don't yell at us. It's okay. Uh, any last thoughts, Sean? I like video games. We, we recorded a lot of podcasts just now. That's the best I can do.